Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 18 of History's Greatest Idiots, the show in which we take you back through the absolute length and breadth of human history and give you examples of human stupidity so that you can learn from their mistakes and make sure that you don't repeat them. But who are we kidding? We're humans. We enjoy making mistakes so much so that today we've got some quite from what we've because we never tell each other what we who we're covering, but we've got some possibly one of our longer episodes today because we've got You're a welcome. lot of information to cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if if you listen to our and I know quite a few people do uh, listen to our podcast all the way through, um, either as sleep aids or because they're masochists. I don't know. Um, <laughs> then you're really going to love today's episode because you know it could be one of our longer ones. So joining me as ever is my amazing co-host Derek. Derek, how has your week been? How are things with you? It's it's been pretty good. Uh, baseball's awesome. kicking back off. Um, yes, but I ran into an actual real life scenario of people repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. But I don't know Ooh. if I should talk about it or not. Oh, is it a litigious situation potentially? No, I'm not sure. It it has to do with our uh, hosting platform. Uh, <laughs> um, we, I think for now, because we never know who's listening, we won't go into details. However, things may be changing here. And all we can say for now is that our hosting platform is surprisingly not great at their job. <laughs> that's indeed most, yeah that's the most polite way i can possibly put what's going on but uh yeah uh, we we will hopefully be sorting that in the near future in fact we're making moves too um so yeah um how how are things over in arizona so you, your son is getting started with baseball again and uh things going okay over there with everyone else yeah yeah um he's starting his fall season everything right. is just it's it's finally cooling down. I mean, mm. it's still a little hot, so everybody's angry cool. and just over it, as we are <laughs> at this time of the year, every year. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. everything's going well, Go going nice. into the, the fall. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, I've noticed that as well. It's starting to get cold to the point where I'm like, oh, I can wear two layers now. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm so looking forward shot. to hoodies. Yeah, you know, like being warm. There's something, and I guess it's something that happens as you get older and, you know, bits of your body start to fall off. But I look forward to colder weather more than I do hot weather because I have more control over what I can wear and what I can cover up, you know? Um, yeah. So That's I enjoy real. spring, autumn, even winter I, I quite enjoy because it's something very like special about the crisp, cold air that I really, really enjoy. But, uh, yeah, the summer, I struggle. Yeah, I, mean, I kind I of just disappear from, like, yeah. april to september here mm. yeah because that's that's basically like well, it's over half the year and you know you guys get very very hot weather so yeah i can completely understand that but when it gets a bit more temperate you know I'll, I'll, and obviously it's getting darker but you know i've taken the dog to because my wife's away for the weekend i've taken the dog for some really interesting walks the last couple of days and i get an option to do that without being drenched in sweat nearly dying of dehydration so uh, yeah yeah that's always fun when you come back all dripping. <laughs> I guess I can't do anything for the next two hours because I need to fall asleep now. It's my <laughs> usual thing. It's like I need to be unwell and fall asleep. But yeah, we've had really lovely times. And uh, over in the UK at the moment, and this is probably something we should mention because we're a history podcast, is that we're uh, in the middle of a bank holiday because the Queen's 
you know, shuffled loose her mortal coil. Um, I am no royalist by any stretch of the imagination. I do tend to lean more on the side of it's a 96 year old. Well, was she 96? I don't know. She was fucking I think old. think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> old enough. Ancient. Old as fuck. Yeah. So, you know, it's an old woman. She had family, you know, a few of whom don't really, you know, aren't really to be given breaks in situations but you know be reasonably respectful but at the same time the wall-to-wall coverage we have had in this country of her death of the procession of people queuing up to see her her her, uh lying in state like nine to twelve hours has been crazy and to the point where two national um uh, tv presenters might lose their jobs because they jumped the queue to see her grave yeah Wow. (laughs) None of that makes any damn sense to me. I know. It's so fucking crazy. One person on Twitter put the the video of like the Queen, the whole process of the Queen lying in state and news coverage over um, audio of the BBC describing um, the death of Kim Um, (laughs) Jong-il. They're like, spot the difference. Uh, It was it was really weird, to be honest. And I'm Welsh. We are not fans, really, of like royalty and institutional stuff because we've been living under foreign foreign rules since the Romans arrived. So you know, it's like it's it's. But you know, my some members of my family really love the Queen and the royals, and you know, I get it. But at the same time, like I wish I could opt out of some of the media coverage. It is all encompassing. Yeah. Well, it, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's weird because over here the coverage, at least where I'm coming across, is a lot of oh no and then it's a lot of like yeah well she's a, a colonial yeah. leader that just ruled over people and made shit suck yeah and i'm like yeah. well i suppose if you look at it that way <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is true let's not forget the colonial past that she inherited and was quite fond of so you know and how just massively detached from the rest of us the royal family i know a few people who have worked with them um, including one guy who we are basically convinced is a spy. Um, because whenever whenever there was an incident in a country or a major world event, he'd be like, oh, I've got business over here. And we're like, oh, yeah, do you? Sure. Okay. Ah. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and he'd disappear um, and come back with a tan and be exhausted. And, you know, anyway, um, away from my spy friend. Um, yeah, we, we know a few people who know the Royals and I've not always had the greatest of feedback on them and i've heard a lot about famous people so anyway we won't go into too much detail but let, let safe to say that we're in a weird time in history because Dude. the only queen that um anyone has ever known has passed away my grandmother has known five royals now um <laughs> the queens uh Take that yeah the queens <laughs> let's see so she was born when the queen's grandfather ruled trying to think yes the queen's grandfather and then that passed down to bertie um who abdicated right uh, not and then um passed on to his brother david uh, no david abdicated it went on to be anyway she knew that those three and then obviously the queen after um the king died and now charles and she's like oh you know they come and go you know <laughs> so yeah <laughs> I guess that's a way to look at it. When you're 91 years old, you know, royals, 92 even, royals come and go. You know, she's seen so many of them. So, yeah. Well, I mean, this queen. Oh, man. I just almost Elizabeth. went horribly wrong there. I'll just leave it alone. 
I was going to say the queen was coming and coming and coming, and now she just finally went. Yeah, she did. <clears throat> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> she. Uh, yeah, I'd imagine that you know it's going to go on for a little while longer because we've got the funeral tomorrow. But I won't be watching. That's like an extra day of work for me. I'm just going to enjoy myself. Anyway, away from all the craziness that's happening on this side of the pond and is getting coverage all over the world. Derek, can you tell us who your idiot of the week is, please? Well, um, I've got this this actor feller who's also directed Ooh. and done some other things. Oh, interesting. And it's it seems like it's more common these days for celebrities to say and do horrible, crazy shit uh, that's insensitive or whatever, and they get canceled. Yeah, that's the, very common now. Yeah. The dude I got today is like the OG of doing that, I think. You know, he said some dumb, shitty, hateful, absurd things and got himself canceled. Wow. For a little while, anyway. Uh, he was born in Peekskill, New York on January 3rd of 1956 and is the sixth, si Jesus, sixth of 11 children. Wow. wow I can't say THs. Cool. This is going to be fun. <laughs> uh, his mom was just like popping kids out like some sort of Pez, I imagine. And wow. uh, anyway, his parents are Irish descent. His mother was actually born in Ireland. And it's because of his mother's status that he re retains dual Irish and American citizenship. Right. Okay. In uh, 1968, his father got hurt at work and was awarded a large settlement in a, a work-related injury case okay. against the New York Central Railroad. Scored him about $145,000. And Holy then the shit. family dipped to Australia. Where yeah, he, small. he also maintains a... Uh, Permanent residence ship, whatever. Wow. I, is that how you say that? Yeah, I... I um, so he's Irish-American and he can go to Australia. Yeah, but I always so thought like... he was Australian, so... Oh, I think I know who you're talking about now. <laughs> oh, whoop, did I give it away? I hope not. <laughs> um, so his family moves to Australia, right. and I guess it's partly to live out on that money mm. better economically. Yeah, certainly in Australia, around about what the 60s, 70s, 60s, you know, yep. yes, $140,000 goes a long way out there at that time. Gets you a lot of land. I was going to say property, but it would be land at that point, you know, that kind of money. So, it's so kind say of crazy. Like a cattle ranch or something. Anyway, yeah. um, the other reason he was there is his oldest son was right about the age for the draft and it was Ooh. 1968 and the united states was in vietnam doing mm. things yeah so that's one of the reason they went there but well. anyway during his high school years he's in uh, new south wales on the east coast of australia doing his thing going to saint leo's catholic college mm. where he's getting his education from the congregation of christian brothers Okay. It's like a educational sect of the Catholic Church, I guess. Okay. Uh, not much going on there. And after high school, he gets into acting and studies mm -hmm. at the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney. Uh, okay. Yeah. As a student there, he's playing opposite Judy Davis in the school's production of Romeo and Juliet. Wow. And he plays the role of Queen um, Tiriana in the experiment uh, experimental production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. So uh, following that, he graduates in 1977 and scores a role in his first movie, Summer City, where he, he makes a, a whopping $400. 
<laughs> it's a start, you know. Foot it is door. a start. And yeah. then his second foot through the door is his first major role in uh, a movie on the big screen, playing the title character of a very popular film that was released in 1979. And he made about $15,000 for it, which is not really much considering how big the movie became. Sure. Anyway, he, he gets uh, good press from the film critics and he gets... Uh, a ton of comparisons to classic movie stars like Steve McQueen, Clark Gable, hum mm -hmm. Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. And around this same time, he meets his first wife, who's working as a dental nurse for the South Australian Theatre Company. And by June 7th of 1980, the two are married and mm. pop out a kid. Because that's what you nice. do. Yeah, that's what you <laughs> did in the 80s. You know, get married young, pop out a kid, have a tiny mortgage that you pay off very quickly. Except for that part, I did the same thing in the 2000s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think everyone <laughs> that got a mortgage after the 80s was like, oh shit, this is going to take me decades to pay off. So, so yeah. Um, sorry, the toaster zoids popped in. Uh, can Rockefeller say poop? Poop. There you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so you haven't told me the name of this first film, but I think I know what it is. Right. Just, I'm not going to well, say it. Right. I'm holding on to it for just a minute. So, I, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the suspense growing. <laughs> Uh, for a while after having his kid, he's in some Australian television series and mm -hmm. films. But it's after director Peter Weir cast him as one of the leads in the World War One drama. Um, Gallipoli? That one. Yep. Oh, <laughs> in 1989. Yeah, he lands himself an agent, heads off to Hollywood, and actually gets a reputation as a serious and versatile <laughs> actor. Yeah, Gallipoli was... Um... It was a, a very, very tough and true story because there was a tragic um, mass death in, in World War One in, in those battles around Gallipoli and Ypres and, and Passchendaele and places like that. So, yeah, um, yeah, it was a, a really interesting film. And for a, a young up and coming actor, it was a, a really, really good opportunity that kind of the modern version of that, I guess you could consider would be a uh, version of it would be 1917 which was uh, released by Sam Mendes a couple of years ago. Roger that Deakins was familiar. the DP. Yeah, it's it's on Amazon Prime. I'm pretty certain it's on there. It's all it's filmed as if it's one long shot, um, but obviously they they use trickery to hide the the edits and cuts. And stuff. <laughs> but like, yeah. But it feels uh, ironically, even though it's a World War One thing, it feels like you're actually watching a video game. That's that's how oh. it feels. Yeah, it's the closest okay. thing I think you'll ever see to an Oscar winning video game film um for a very right. long time <laughs> but yeah please carry on so he was in gallipoli gets an agent ball starting a roll and then yeah he gets his first american success and it's actually with a sequel yeah yeah you know what the sequel is you know who i'm talking about <laughs> by that by now you you said it but yeah. it's coming i promise yeah, maybe yeah. uh so uh the following year he takes a one-year hiatus from acting for the birth of his twin sons in oh, 1982 nice. and comes back and snatches up a role of Fletcher Christian in the bounty. Oh yeah. I in 1985, that. he earns his first million dollar salary for playing once again, Max rock and top. Max and Max. <laughs> Mad Max. It's Mad Max. Yeah. And that would be beyond Thunderdome. I guess, that was Beyond Thunderdome. Yep. Yeah. That was and, not a great film, but the first two are amazing. It, it, right? Well, yeah. It's, I don't, 
sequel's never really that good. I think it's strange mm. that it was the sequel to the first one that actually got him success yeah. here. So, I mean, yeah. why not think, take a third shot? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you kind of, the sequel, because Mad Max was like a cult film, it was a huge success, but it was a, a cult film. It's one of those things where I think because the sequel was so good, it made people go back and appreciate it more. Kind of like yeah. Aliens and Alien. Like Aliens was another huge hit and people were like, oh, let's go back and look at Alien, which itself was a big hit, but the people were like, oh my God, this is a, a masterful horror film, uh, yes. which it really wasn't considered. It was considered kind of a B-movie and it was given quite bad reviews at the time, but after the success of Aliens and the, the huge amount of money that made, people would go back and same thing happened with Mad Max. People were like, this is incredibly well made and the director, George... Oh, what's his name? Good question. Yeah, <laughs> whatever his name is, he 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 did Happy Feet, amazingly weird film. Oh, but um, yeah, and he's got another one coming out soon. George Miller, I think it is. Um, he is a masterful filmmaker, but he takes like a decade to make each film. So he's hey. he's a slow working genius. To each their own. Yeah. Anyway, so by now everybody knows I'm talking about Mel Gibson. Yeah. And in 1985, we'll follow him along to being named Sexiest Man Alive by People mm. Magazine. Sexy, was, sexy man. It was the first time that somebody had been given that title. Yes, he was the first. So in 1985, he's taken off. He's the sexiest man alive. He mm. works on four films in a row. Um, bam, bam, bam. Mm. Then he takes two years off and goes mm -hmm. to an Australian cattle ranch. Nice. Where he just disappears for two years. Yeah. Then yeah, he pops it's... back up mm -hmm. and does Lethal Weapon in 1987. Which, which was huge. Yeah, it cemented his success as a, as a Hollywood dude, as an action hero, a leading yeah, man. Yeah, for sure. You know? And also earned him so much money like on residuals because at this point he's such a big star that he can command like a cut of the, the profits and stuff. So, yes. Well, he's yeah. not quite making tons of money yet, but no. he's getting ready getting to. There. Yeah. yeah. So he does Tequila Sunrise in 88, then Lethal mm -hmm. Weapon 2 in 89, and then 90 hits, and he does Bird on a Wire, Air America, Hamlet, and shit's taken off. Yeah, really is. It continues through the 90s with Forever Young, Lethal Weapon 3, mm -hmm. Maverick, Braveheart, fucking yeah. tons of them. He just, yeah. He's just knocking them down. It's, and... it's interesting. Sorry, just want to interject that. Um, Braveheart was like the big one because it won shitloads of Oscars and kind of like wow okay he's a serious actor and he can do like he can do accents sort of uh <laughs> but it was the first it was the first creeping sign that his grasp of historical accuracy may not be quite as good as it should be it's yeah it's super his his historical accuracy is super straight up american <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, not uh, that all Americans don't grasp history. I'm just saying, no, like, no, like me, no. generally, it's so. just it's it's it ignores nuance. Mel Gibson's view on history. It's like because this idea of, I mean, Braveheart can be ripped apart by historians and regularly is for like the tactics, the fact that they're wearing blue war paint and kilts, which just didn't happen, and they had nobody, no one had worn blue face paint for like a thousand plus years. <laughs> Close. Yeah, and um, the whole like. Um, the way he portrayed, um, oh, what's his name? Um, William Wallace. William Wallace. Yeah, William Wallace is a wealthy landowner. He wasn't like some scrub who fought the crown. Like this was a very wealthy, well-off, well-trained man who had 
a clan behind him. It wasn't just some, oh, look at me, I live in a mud hut kind of thing. It wasn't <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, that's not the only movie where he's been wildly inaccurate, and we'll get oh, to no. that here in a minute. Yeah. Um, so in the 2000s is when he gets his record salary. Yes. After all that success with Braveheart and Lethal Weapons and Payback and shit, even a Disney movie when he did John Smith for Pocahontas. Oh, yeah, that's right. He was in that. I forgot. In 2000, he appears in The Patriot, which grosses over $100 million. He scores himself a salary of $25 million on it. Jeez. And then wow. does two more movies, Chicken Run and What Women Want, because fuck yeah. it, why not? Light-hearted comedies as well. It's like, <laughs> And actually, I think he really enjoyed What Women Want, because not only did he get to play a playboy, but also like he got to dance in a film. He- He's he has a like a little dance. I missed yeah. that part. Yeah, there's like a whole dance sequence in his apartment where he's like throwing his hat around and stuff. And like, I feel like he wanted to, he feels like a guy who wants to do things to say, hey, look, I can do this. I can yeah. do serious. I can do comedy. I can do claymation. I can do dancing and all of that shit. So yeah, I think that was probably quite a good time for him, especially when you're getting paid $25 million a film. I don't think he got that from Ardman were based in bristol in the united kingdom so i think he probably did that for the fact that they were huge because of the wallace and gromit films but yeah um he's earning a shitload of money at this point in time he is he is and it continues into the rest of the 2000s when he does the vietnam war drama we were soldiers which is like i don't know why i really like that movie it's really movie. good. It is really, really good. He and also as a director and writer and stuff, he makes really good films. Oh yeah, for the most part. Just outside of films, he's got troubles, and oh, those yeah. are coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the M Night Shyamalan movie where he plays uh, a, a priest. Priest that gave up on his 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 religiousness, which I love. Um, I love signs. That's dude, everybody hates film. that, but I love it. I love it too. And, and people hate The Village. I really enjoy that as well. What's the matter with people? The Village, I hated originally because okay. they marketed it like shit. They made it oh, seem like it yeah. was going to be something totally different than it was. So I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> There's no and risk. That... Oh, I don't want to spoil it. I know it's no, 100 don't... years old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you haven't seen M. Night Shyamalan films yet. We We won't discuss them in detail, but pretty much every single one has got a twist. That's the twist, is that if you can find one that doesn't have a twist, that's the twist in an M. Night Shyamalan film. But yeah, <laughs> The, the Village go. and Signs. Um, Signs is a particularly good one because the twist is like, there's like a kind of an, uh, how do we put this? Like a theological twist, I think ah, you could say. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's like, that isn't explicitly mentioned like a lot of the other twists, but it's sort of heavily implied. So, so uh, yeah. that's nuancedness. Yeah, and I quite enjoyed it. And it's a really nice performance by Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix and even Abigail Breslin, who's like the little girl in that film, is adorable and really like natural. You feel like oh, yeah. the performance is totally genuine from this real. young girl. Like, and why are you leaving glasses of water everywhere? They're contaminated. And it's like the kind of... <laughs> the kind of thing that a kid would say i i love that whole film really do well and i i guess maybe i'm just not hanging out with the right people because obviously people loved it 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 was the highest grossing film of his acting career wow really yep i'm genuinely surprised by that and as like a baller he decides that uh while he's promoting signs 
he's no longer going to be a movie star and says he only wants to act in films if the script is truly extraordinary. I mean, sure, if you can afford to do that, why the fuck not? You know, well, he's got other plans too, and he yeah. doesn't actually return to the screen until 2010. Wow, shit. He does, however, take a seat behind the camera, and in September 2002, he announces that he's going to film this this movie called The Passion. Yeah, and it's going to be done in Aramaic, and it's going to be done in Latin, and there's going to be no subtitles because <laughs> we're going to transcend language barriers with filmatic storytelling. Yeah, that's not going to work. Anyway, in 2004, he releases the controversial film The Passion of the Christ, Mm. which he co-wrote, co-produced, and directed. And that became the highest grossing R-rated film at the time, raking in $370,782,930. For an R-rated film, that is a lot of money. I remember at the time, the kind of furore around this, it was being screened in churches, this film. Like they yes. were putting on performances in churches for um, congress uh, congresses. But what the, what's the word? I'm looking congregations. For. Congregations. Thank. You. Yes. And hey. uh, yeah, they're um, they really were. That film was everywhere, and it was not just controversial, but it made the news for a number of different reasons. Brutally violent. Yeah, incredibly violent. And I mean, people are, always knew that Mel Gibson had starred in quite violent films the mad max films i know you know wallflowers and a lot of you know the die hard not die hard um lethal weapons the weapon films are are quite violent and you know um the patriot is quite a violent film and goodness all sorts of stuff the passion kickstarted half of the planet's bdsm kinks uh (laughs) controversial opinion (laughs) but yeah it does i mean there's a prolonged scene of somewhat of of jesus being whipped in that film um yeah, it's an incredibly violent film, but I remember seeing a lot of the people, like interviews with people coming out of the theatre crying because they felt the power of the film. And one woman said, "You can, re- you get a sense of what Jesus went through." I'm like, "Yeah, but do you know? <laughs> yeah, like, do we know that's what happened? That he was whipped for this exact length of time in this exact way?" And like, I don't know if the Bible goes into that much detail. I'm married Turns- to a theologian now, so maybe I should ask her. But you know. Turns out um, it's not necessarily historically accurate. Maybe, yeah. probably, uh, like Braveheart, it may have taken some liberties. Yeah, I think but, so. Hey, just like he promised, though, the film was shot exclusively in Aramaic and Latin mm. and Hebrew, which is great. But it had subtitles because duh. studios got to get in there and ruin everything, haven't they? <laughs> Making it accessible to viewers. Exactly. They they had to do something, you know. To, yeah. to get their two cents in, I guess. But okay. I think without it, it wouldn't have been the same. Because no. Ah. no one would have seen it. You know, maybe a few people in Israel, and they would not have been happy with the portrayal. Mm. No. Well, it actually, <laughs> yeah, it sparked the divergent reviews. Mm. There was people saying it was high praise, like you said. And mm. then there was criticism of the violence. Mm. And the Anti-Defamation League accused him of anti-Semitism because of his unflattering depiction of uh, some of the characters in there. Yeah. The Jewish ones? Fair. Yeah. Um, there was actually one review of the film in The Nation, which is a bi-weekly magazine that covers political and cultural news. Okay. And the reviewer said, quote, Gibson has violated just about every precept of the conference's own 1988 criteria, which is a reference to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Right. And um, 
that he he via excuse me yeah he violated the precepts by portraying uh, Jews in dramatizations of the Passion as bloodthirsty Jews with mm. uh, no use of scripture that reinforces any negative stereotypes that are shown on screen. And the yep. priests have big noses and gnarly faces and lumpish bodies and yellow teeth. And Herod and his court are like a bizarre collection of oily-haired uh, perverts. Mm. This is the quote still. So... <laughs> Yeah, needless to say, people weren't happy about the movie uh, as equally as they were happy about the movie, but I think probably yeah. more mad about the movie. I don't even, yeah. I'm rambling. No, 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 but like the depictions, <laughs> I, I remember that. Like, a lot of eyebrows were raised about the depictions of certain people in the film, and um, that's when suspicion was cast his way because he's in almost complete control of this film, right? To the right. point where no studio in their right mind would release a film in three different dead languages. Uh, well, people is dead, but like two of three of the languages are dead in this film, unless it was because one of the most powerful and biggest drawing people in Hollywood were making those decisions and forcing them to. So, right, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Uh, but there were some people that defended him, including an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and a radio personality and some other celebrities. But the negative media attacks actually continued on and started to anger Mel. And much like the Hulk, you don't want to anger Mel Gibson. You don't want to see him when he's angry. You only want to see him when he's mad. Mad yeah, Max. Really dumb. Anyway, <laughs> uh, that was a bad joke. Sorry. <laughs> the, the media kept at, at him and they published some stuff that his dad said denying the Holocaust. Oh. And that really, really pissed him off. Mm -hmm. So much so that he came out with this quote that said, uh, of the writer Frank Rich, I want to kill him. I want to see his intestines on a stick. I want to kill his dog. Why Dude, his what dog? His dog yeah. didn't say anything, you prick. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, so he, he violent, violent sometimes. Kind of crazy as well. So I'm going to circle back to the fact that Mel Gibson, say, uh, he says he had a drinking problem that started at the age of 13. Oof. Um, when he was back at the National Institute of Drama and Acting, hmm. he found out he was also a, a manic depressive. Yeah, that sounds I, right. Yeah. yeah, and it led to some high highs and low lows. Mm -hmm. So his mental state's kind of in this flux, and he's abusing alcohol, which never it's goes well. No. <clears throat> not if you have a pre-existing mental condition. If you have an addiction on top of that, that's like a recipe for disaster right there. It yeah, it's a common theme with people that kind of go yeah. off the rails. It is, it really is. Don't self-medicate. No. In uh, 1984, he was actually banned from driving in Ontario, Canada, for three months after getting into a rear-end car wreck in Toronto while he was drunk. Wow. And his drinking started to get out of control. He confided into a friend and collaborator that he was drinking five pints of beer for breakfast. Oh, wow. That makes Paul Gascoigne's five Mars bars for breakfast seem relatively tame, to be quite honest. These guys Jesus. are competing for five of the worst things for breakfast ever. <laughs> we'll be moving on to anthrax next. But yeah, uh, that's like that is a, a five pints of beer for breakfast. That's you're going to be burping for the rest of the day. That is not a good start to the day. I'm actually impressed with his ability to maintain that awesome physique through all yeah. of that beer because mine did not do that. <laughs> mine didn't either my, but mind you when i was a teenager i i drank and 
worked out while I was before and after I had been drinking. So I guess like you burn it off. But as I got older and stopped drinking, you know, your body just sort of gives in anyway. But yeah, I guess like when you have as much money as Mel Gibson did, you have personal trainers, right? And they don't mind if you show up pissed as long as they get paid. Yeah, so. that yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, and it is easier, you know, when you're in your 30s or 20s yeah. to drink and work out. I remember yeah. that. Mm. <laughs> so remember when I said in 1985 he took two years off? Yeah. And he went to his Australian cattle farm? Yeah. Well, it turns out because he was struggling with drinking and he went right. there to go recover. And right, he went to get clean. Get his shit together. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In an interview, he says in his mid-30s that... Uh, he had this bout of despair that led him to contemplate suicide. Wow. And he really, during that time turned to Christ's passion to heal his wounds. Okay. Um, and then he took some more time and sought professional help, but some of that help that he was getting led to other troubles when the Sunday mirror published things that he had said during AA meetings, which is a total dick move. Well, yeah. You should not have minutes from an AA meeting. That's a really private situation. What the hell? Yeah. So, He's had some rough knocks. Not all of them were his fault. And I mean, you know, battling mental health and and addiction, it's hesitant to say it's not his fault, but it's Mm. not exactly in his. Yeah. My anti-Semitism is okay because I drink, says Toastazoid. Yeah, that's absolutely um, kind of what he tried to say. Uh It it does feel like a little bit of a cop out, but uh, yeah. His problems actually continued with the Gay and Lesbian Alliance. Mm. Um, Glad got mad at him and accused him of homophobia after a December 1991 interview in a Spanish newspaper where he made derogatory comments. And he, yeah, he did... re... sorry, yeah, sorry, just to interrupt. Sorry, I was going to say there was someone I can't remember which celebrity it was, and I can't remember what the interview was, but they said they went to a party and they went there dressed like in a specific way that wasn't like what you would call gender normative. And Mel Gibson came up to them and said, what are you, some kind of, and then dropped the F slur. And at that point they were like, oh, I'm not going to bother with this person anymore. He's horrible. So, and he was sober at the time, as they remember. So yeah, sometimes you're just a dick. Yeah. Sometimes you're just an (laughs) arsehole and drinking is just a side part of being an arsehole as opposed to being the reason for it. And if you're like me, sometimes it's your excuse for why you were an asshole. Anyway, um, not a valid one. No. But so he defends his comments, rejects calls to apologize, and then joins up with GLAD, which is the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. Mm -hmm. And he hosts 10 lesbian and gay filmmakers on location for like a seminar during his movie Conspiracy Theory in 97. I remember that. Yeah, I remember seeing that in the cinema. It was, um, it was quite an intense film. I mean, he, he doesn't do anything other than intense films. But yeah, I uh, didn't know he did that. That's that's at least the right call to make. But, you know, having people on set is one thing. Advocating for them so that they can get work is a totally different thing. And I don't think he would have gone that far. Not exactly, no. Because in 99, when he was asked about his comments and, and all of that, he says, I shouldn't have said it. But I was tickling a bit of vodka during the interview, and that quote came back to bite me on the ass. That's not exactly apologizing for it at all. Really isn't. <laughs> I was drunk, like uh, Toastazoid said. I had a little <laughs> bit of drink, and I thought I'd say a homophobic slur. So, soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, people do. 
Anyway, (laughs) the hits kept coming, and in July of 2006, he's arrested by Sheriff's Jeopardy uh, James Mee of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department for guess why? Drunk driving and anti-Semitic abuse. Uh, That comes in the middle of the stop, but it was drunk driving and speeding. Oh, okay, right. The the anti-Semitic thing comes over here in a minute. Yeah, Um, It's, it's quite a weird one as well. Oh, dude, it's so weird. Uh, he first tells the officer when he pulls up. These are quotes here. My life is over. I'm fucked. Robin's going to leave me. End quote. Right. That's his wife. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's the man in the depression talking. I'm pretty certain she wouldn't have left you because you've been pulled over for speeding and being drunk. Like, shit happens. Unless and... there was some sort of like, hey, if you do that again, son mm, of a... I, I can see that, <laughs> but still, you know an addict and you know but yeah anyway so sorry please carry on with the quote well according to the arrest report he bursts into this angry tirade um that he actually later on in a vanity fair interview he says was an attempt to commit suicide by cop oh come on we'll uh we'll jump into this and you form your own opinion ah god this is okay these are quotes quotes youtube Don't get mad at me. Um, So Mel Gibson says to the arresting officer, quote, fucking Jews. The Jews are responsible for all of the wars in the world. Are you a Jew? How is that suicide by cop? That's just being (laughs) a dick. That's not suicide by cop. That's just being an (laughs) asshole. Suicide by cop is trying to grab the gun. Yeah. Poking at him with a fork. Yeah, exactly. Like that, that is not suicide by cop. That's being a racist, anti-Semitic piece of shit. Exactly. Simple. And I rightfully so or not, but the arrest report was leaked on TMZ. Yeah. And it went nuts. And he came out and he he offers two apologies, one through his publicist and one in an interview with Diane Sawyer. Which is where everyone used to go to apologize at one point in time. Diane Sawyer was your ground zero for apology tours. Dude. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, that actually reminded me. Have you ever seen Orville? That Seth MacFarlane space show. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Dude, it's awesome. It's so good. The Apology Tour uh, on that one planet. Dude. Yes. Okay. So now that I've got everybody thoroughly, watch Orville. (laughs) Watch Orville. It's great. It really is. On Hulu, Disney Plus, wherever it's at. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So TMZ releases that. He goes on his Apology Tour, and Mm. he further apologizes for his despicable behavior saying that he blurted out the comments in a moment of insanity. And then he asked to meet with uh, Jewish leaders to help him discern the appropriate path for healing. These are quotes. Yeah. Uh, again, there are 11 goes, steps on that path. Dude, 32 steps. Anyway, oh, he, uh, he, he, 12 steps, 13 steps. Uh, he, he goes back into rehab. Right. Yeah. Which he needed really. And after 26 years of marriage, his wife, Robin, separated from him on July 29th, 2006. So he wasn't wrong, apparently. Yeah, that's going to be tough right there. He says the separation began the day following my arrest for drunk driving in Malibu. She Mm. files for divorce on April 13th, 2009, citing irreconcilable differences. And the divorce uh, filing actually followed some photos that came out in March of him... Mm -hmm holding on to this Russian songwriter and pianist, uh, Oksana Grigoriev. Uh, oh, interesting. So he's right. During the separation, he's getting with 
the, the hot Russian. <laughs> Which everyone does. You know, you're in a yeah. downward si a spiral. Uh, I think the same thing happened to Ronnie Wood, the Rolling Stones. He got with a, a hot blonde Russian who was like half his age. Hey, uh, there was another guy that did that. I think he ran for president afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're thinking of peeing on Russians. That's a totally oh, different thing. so That's close. why. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so she files for divorce after those pictures come out. And right. on April 28th, he actually shows up on a red carpet with Oksana. Oh, what? Dude. Yep. Side by, piece, really? Well, by October, they <laughs> celebrated the birth of their daughter. Oh, shit. Dude, he's Seriously. knocking out kids the same way his dad did. Pop, 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 yeah. pop, 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 like a Pez dispenser. Jesus. So following the, the show up in April on the red carpet, the next year, or wait, October, they have their baby. By April <laughs> of the next year, in 2010, they split up. And oh, she wow. files a restraining order. Oh, shit. Four days later, he files a restraining order on her. Okay, yeah, that's just, that's just a tactical... Think Move. finger pointy stuff yeah that's like oh she's done it we have to do it now so that it looks like a mutual breakdown instead of mel gibson the crazy anti-semitic guy has done it again yeah. tries yeah. a little damage control but it doesn't work because in july of 2010 there's like this recorded phone call that comes out oh i remember this where he suggested that he hopes she got raped by a pack of n-words yep um, I remember that phone call, and that's like one of about fifteen horrific different things oh, that he says in this this phone call. It is like, and the, the poor woman—you can hear her end—and a lot of the phone call is just her being shocked, but like, oh, not yeah, knowing how just, to reply. Because he's wild. Like, where does that come yeah. from? That's he's just, just randomly a, yeah. picking at crazy shit to say. I know. It's just—it's <laughs> really. He's a, yeah. At that point. Because, uh, you know, after the anti-Semitic thing, there was, you know, it, he's he doesn't like Jewish people and he works in Hollywood. You know, you're kind of in hot water when you do something like that. But then when that phone call came out, that was kind of it. Really, oh, yeah. people were like, we are done with this guy. And no matter how many times Robert Downey Jr. tries to give him a stage at award shows and stuff, uh, it's not it's not happening, mate. Sorry. Yeah, he was actually barred from seeing his... Uh... Oksana and their daughter mm -hmm. because of yeah. domestic violence. Yep. And then there was a domestic violence investigation that was later dropped because he pled no contest to misdemeanor right. battery. Mm -hmm. In August of 2011, he settled with uh, Oksana for $750,000, joint legal mm -hmm. custody, and she got to keep the house in Sherman Oaks until their daughter turned 18. That's not bad. That's not that. too bad. In terms, of, in terms of a settlement, you know, that certainly not tiger woods level acrimony right there so that could have been far worse he sh probably should have been in prison but wait there's more oh god <laughs> uh to make things worse that whole time he wasn't even divorced from robin yet it wasn't even finalized oh, the divorce was finalized on december 23rd of 2011 and the settlement that she got was the highest okay. in hollywood history at over 400 million dollars holy shit yeah see <laughs> They didn't have a prenup. Oh, okay. And, and then California she, law. Yep. She got half his shit. Of everything. Holy shit. 400 million. Yep. Where's he making his... I mean, I know he's getting 25 million a film now, but he's not making 20 fucking films before he has his downfall, right? That's crazy money. 
he was also he's also involved in some real estate investments and stuff like other oh, people that run off with small. Russians. Okay. Oh, yeah, cool. Um, this the same year. Oh, excuse me. Jesus, I'm skipping ahead. So no, his okay. his statements come out. Uh, his divorce goes through. He loses all that money, and he's blacklisted from Hollywood for like a yeah. decade. And then, oh, like yeah. you said, Robert Downey Jr. is trying to you know get him forgiven, and Allison yeah. Hope Weiner. Is that right? Uh, she advocated for his his forgiveness. She's a, a journalist. And also, uh, like Jodie Foster cast him in a couple of things. Uh huh. It, and it's still kind of he he kicks it around and yeah. tries to make a comeback. And mm. he signed on to direct this movie called Hacksaw Ridge. Yes, which That's is that, a yeah big success. Oh yeah, yeah. The, it's a World War II drama based on the true story of the conscientious objector Desmond T. Doss, mm -hmm. and it went on to receive six Academy Award nominations. That's right. And it it was kind of perceived as his thaw, and he was coming back to mm -hmm. to work. And a lot of people became eager to work with him again, although mm -hmm. he hasn't done a whole lot. He's, yeah, and I'm, he's been nominated for a bunch of Razzies. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, and he's done like a lot of what are known as Jerry action films. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> yeah. What was the Expendables? The ex he was in one of the Expendables films. And as Toaster Zoy pointed out earlier on here, I'll just uh, do this. He's starring in a John Wick prequel. So, oh, a I mean, prequel? Pre was he yeah. like John Wick's dad? Uh, Maybe yeah, that's where like... he kills the dog. <laughs> yes. There, <laughs> there you go. That's the start of the whole dog thing. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, where can they go with John Wick? series at this point they've done every fucking film under the sun yeah, but yeah it's like his career even at this stage is very much in nomad territory right there's there's no big thing on the horizon yeah there's not a whole lot going on as of 2014 he did that movie uh got himself into a relationship with a former champion equestrian vaulter had a ninth child holy shit and, every sperm uh, is sacred indeed dude. catholics out there loving this in 2016, uh, after the election, he said he didn't vote for Trump or Hillary. But then in 2020, at some rally, he was saluting Trump. And then uh, that makes sense. He's, he's not too political that I can tell. He's no. just batshit crazy and anti-Semitic. Yeah, he's just kind of a prick, really. Um, that's all I got on Mel Gibson. That's where we're at. He's just kind of a prick. Yeah, just kind of out there existing as an arsehole. And, his own you know, world of being a prick and getting as many people pregnant as possible. Um, I do yeah. kind of have the soft spot on the mental health and alcohol, oh, yeah. alcoholism because I kind of feel like I've been there. Yeah, me too. And like when something gets its hooks into you that early, like at 13, you know, when your brain is still very much developing, that's not a good time to develop a habit. You yeah. know, that's, that's never going away. You can manage it, but you are never getting rid of that you know you're just going to get really good at managing it and controlling it and hopefully right. that's how it stays for the rest of your life yeah I, I do feel and you look at mel gibson um the problem you have with mel gibson is that because he was in such a position of power nobody ever really said no to him so the worst elements of his character and we all have bad elements in our character right they were allowed to kind of flourish and come to the the top of his personality and this whole like family man image that he cultivated for like 25 years rapidly disappeared at one point yeah so i i do have a certain amount of um 
uh, kind of sympathy for him, especially with the mental health stuff and the addiction stuff. But there are plenty of people who have got mental health issues and addiction issues who aren't anti-Semitic and racist and violent pieces of shit. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, we didn't going, kill anybody. It didn't kill anybody. We're back to our scoring <laughs> criteria. Um, in terms of scoring, it's going to be a relatively straightforward one for Mel Gibson because, again, he didn't kill anyone. But um, I feel like he needed somebody with him who could keep him humble. And mm-hmm. I don't think his wife could do that because for some reason he seems to hate women, even though he gets them pregnant all the time. So um, I think if he had a male figure in his life who he considered an equal, who could say to him, Mel, Jesus, get your shit together, man. You know, who could marshal him down a road of maybe not abstinence from alcohol, but certainly controlling that right. use. Um, and maybe helped him kind of control his lesser urges and exposed him to things outside of his experience so that he could understand why, you know, the experience of LGBTQI plus people was, you know, not great and that you shouldn't, you know, say these things about them and how, you know, the whole protocols of the elders of Zion is a load of bullshit and actually, (laughs) you know, Jewish people have been persecuted for eons and are not responsible for every conspiracy you see under the sun. Um, I think with Mel Gibson, um, because he's had such a dramatic fall from grace and because he doesn't really seem to have made amends with wider society, it doesn't seem to have any interest in like, I'm going to do charity work now, I'm going to do this. Like, there's You never hear any redemptive stuff. Yeah, he's not real apologetic. He did no. some philanthropy. I left it off the story because I'm a bad journalist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't fit my narrative. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah what do you yeah, think man? i i think probably an 83 for Ooh, mel i'll take that yeah i think purely because he seems to be so ruled by hatred in his yeah. life and violence and i would love to know what happened in his childhood in australia and you know wh- whatever happened with his family or his dad or whatever the situation was but there's a deep underlying anger and hatred in there which i don't think is rooted in anything that any jewish person or any woman has ever done to him i think it's just they're easy targets for him right so, well you know. and i can say uh maybe from experience even when you have depression mm. you don't like yourself true when you don't like yourself you want other people to hurt the way you hurt yeah when you're drunk and you're smart and you're depressed and you're angry and you hurt and you want to hurt other people you can find some amazingly horrible shit to say to even Mm. people that you like yeah that's very true very very true and it's a, a really sad combination and i do hope that you know he gets his life back on track i don't like seeing people in in bad states like that where they feel like that their legacy and their entire life has been ruined by their mistakes and that they're just this thing now so you know i think he'd have to be apologetic though to i think he would really have to try and make amends and i just don't see that happening he's just sort of existing i I seem to remember a story a few years ago where he tried to get his arrest either rescinded or stricken from the record or something um and and that just made me think well he's clearly not learned anything has he if he's trying to get wiped Exactly. He's trying to get the slate wiped clean, having not done any work to earn that. So yeah, I think an 83 for Mel Gibson is is appropriate, and I do hope in time he humbles himself 
and learns from his mistakes. But to be honest, I think at the moment he's just ignoring them. Yeah. And hoping that the world forgets. But they won't, Mel. You're in an industry that never forgets. Because he's 66. He's got time. He's got time. He's, you know, and he's, he, depending on how much damage he's done to his liver, you know, he, he may have 10, 15 years of work left in him. So, you know, let's, let's just hope that there's a, a comeback story there. But I just hope that he just apologizes and acknowledges all the terrible things he's done and tries to move on with his life because it's the only way you find peace. It's by, yeah. you know, making amends, saying sorry, and just trying to move on, you know. Anyway, from one arsehole who has an element of sympathy to another who has very few redeeming features in their life very few i'm excited to uh, hear what you got here yeah i just want to point out that this person is uh incredibly litigious uh -oh. so neil hamilton if you are listening or watching um sue wikipedia not because <laughs> that's where i got all of this information from and it's all public record so Fuck you. Uh, Neil <laughs> Hamilton, the worst Welsh politician of all time. Mostyn Neil Hamilton was born in Fleur-de-Lis. Um, Fleur-de-Lis? Fleur-de-Lis. A completely okay. misnamed Gwent pit village near oh. Blackwood in Wales. A pit village is um, coal mining area of that part of Wales. Oh, like coal pits? Yes. Yes, okay. absolutely. So, And there would have been slag heaps everywhere. And I think Fleur-de-Lis name may have been slightly ironic in 1960 he moved to Amanford, which is uh, one of the bigger towns in that part of uh, wales his father was a chief engineer for the national coal board his grandfathers were both coal miners and he was born from a a long line of working class mining people and when he grew up in Amanford in Carmarthenshire, he joined the Conservative Party in 1964 at the age of 15, which in Wales is kind of one of the few unforgivable sins you can commit as the descendant of a coal miner. It's Ooh. You are yeah. working class. Your entire ancestry from recorded history will have been working class and possibly even coal miners or, or you know, you know, workers. And you've just joined the Conservative Party, yeah. Uh, like, who have absolutely no interest in the working class and actually do everything they can to make their lives as difficult as possible. The Tories um, did pretty much everything in their power to ruin the lives of working class people in Wales for the better part of 250 years. And that includes actually outlawing Welsh as a culture and a language for a very long period of time. And this guy's just joined them. So he is persona non grata in wales really oh. um yeah not a great start when you're doing that at 15 he's right little no. scamp <laughs> <laughs> hamilton attended a manford valley grammar school in a manford obviously he uh, received a bsc econ degree in economics and politics from the university college of aberystwyth which is kind of mid to north wales in 1970 and an msc econ degree in economics and politics in 1975 so he's got a master's degree uh, in which econ is in politics in economics and politics something that he's going to be completely fucking useless at for the rest of his life <laughs> while at Aberystwyth, he was active in the federation of conservative students he was a member between 1968 and 1974 in 1973 as a representative of the federation of conservative students hamilton attended a conference of the neo-fascist italian social movement msi even for a tory that's too far 
Lev, since he's from Wales, you have a personal vendetta against this guy. He is a Welsh (laughs) Tory. There are very few things in life I dislike more than conservatives in Wales because they are literally there to make the lives of the majority of people in Wales worse. Um, Seems fair. on that. I don't care. Hamilton (laughs) went on to study at Corpus Christi Christi? Christi College. Uh, They sell donuts there too. I know, that would be delicious. (laughs) Corpus Christi University College in... uh, Cambridge, where he attended a postgraduate law degree, a degree that will come in very handy a lot in his life. At the 1970 Conservative Party conference, Hamilton called for a mass privatization sweep across the country. Thatcher must have been listening because that shit happened in the 80s. The following year, he opposed the plan for Britain to join the European communities. In 1972, after several years' membership, Hamilton was elected to the Executive Council of the Conservative Monday Club. He left the club in 1973 and stood as chairman of the Federation of Conservative Students Against David Davis. But lost. David Davis has been Welsh Secretary in this country for a long time. So he's climbing his way up. What a bad name for a club, the Monday Club. Nobody likes Mondays. No, well, it would be a conservative club if it's Mondays. You know, nobody likes Mondays and nobody likes conservatives (laughs) in Wales. So it makes sense. Um, In the early 1970s, Hamilton was the founder of the Elden League, which sounds like something, uh, sounds like a graphic novel that Alan Moore would have written. The Elden League, a right-wing social organization given to having picnics and dinners and having a jolly good time. It's basically the Bullingdon Club, only with less pig sex. Um, <laughs> and if you do, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google David Cameron pig sex. I promise you won't be disappointed. Oh, it dear. might seem like an episode of Black Mirror, but the two things seem to happen simultaneously in real life. Charlie Brooker wrote an episode of Black Mirror where the um, leader of the Conservative Party in the UK has to have sex with a pig. And then several weeks later, a story broke that David Cameron, in his days in the Bullingdon Club as a student, fucked a dead pig's head. Um, oh, yeah. He was our prime Lord. minister when that story broke, and he didn't resign. Um, what? He, I know, it's crazy. <laughs> Good he time. Appoint- I know. So he's part of the Elden League now, Neil Hamilton, and he appoints himself Grand Imperial Prior. Fuck you, you Tory weirdo. And called <laughs> for the. <laughs> this is where he goes a bit mad and called for the abolition of the internal combustion engine and plastic. Um, I'm with him on that last one. Like, hey, yes, replace with him on both. Stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah, kind of, yeah. Get, get rid of it. Use batteries. Why not? Um, but What's that's he want to do? Well, he just wants to, like, give, give them all to me. I want to hold <laughs> Um, <laughs> but um, he's starting to get really active in politics now to the point where he stood as the Conservative parlim- uh, parliamentary candidate in the February 1974 general election in Abertilly and in 1979 general election in Bradford North, both of which completely failed, um, probably because Abertilly is a mining town and most people hated him and he's a Tory and he's going to get about 1% of the vote from some old fucker in a cottage somewhere. And the people of Bradford, the fine folk of Bradford, would be wondering why this Welsh Tory was trying to get elected in their patch. Um, So didn't work out. However, on the 12th of March, 1983, Hamilton was selected as the Conservative candidate for the newly created Tatton constituency. They made up a constituency to get one of their boys in. Hooray for gerrymandering. Yeah, it's yeah. like drawing the boundaries. We're yeah. drawing the boundaries, right? Let's get all the Tories in this area. There we go. Right, you can have that one little seat. When yeah. all else fails, change the rules. Change the law. 
Um, it's better than the Mickey Mouse Club. That's a fair point, actually. Um, although I feel like the Mickey Mouse Club, probably that there's probably not as much pig sex in that either. Um, so three months later, at the 1983 general election, which is the next one after Margaret Thatcher comes to power, Hamilton was elected to Parliament as MP for Tatton, and you'd created constituency, obviously. But also at this point, the Tories are riding a wave and have been for four years because Thatcher swept to power in 1979. On entering the Commons, Hamilton was appointed as an officer of the Backbench Committees on Trade and Industry under the chairmanship of Michael Grills, whose son Bear went on to drink his own piss multiple <laughs> times on international television in survival programs that were filmed mere metres from the nearest Ramada resort. Ah. Um, <laughs> Zing. Zinger Bear. Bear Grills is a liar. Um, yeah. And also he, he bought a Welsh island off the coast of Anglesey and installed, a, I mean, I'm kind of slightly on board with this, installed a massive slide off wow. the island into the ocean, like a 100-meter concrete slide. I'm like, shit, that sounds fun. I'll concrete do that. Sounds, well, I guess, yeah, if you're doing it with a... I was just thinking you'd slide down it on your skin, but concrete would fuck you up, man. Yeah, I know. It must be smooth, <laughs> but still, like, I guess he's got to protect it against the ravages of the sea, but yeah, it I'd sounds like I'd use, like, an like inner tube or something and go down. Yeah, it would make sense. Or like a, a something to sit on, you know, so you don't skin your ass to pieces. Yeah. But yeah, Bear Grylls, drinking piss in the middle of nowhere, despite the fact that he's hundreds of metres from a hotel. Um, in 1984, against party policy, Hamilton opposed the abandonment of leaded petrol in Britain. He argued that there was no evidence that leaded petrol was damaging the environment or health, except there was. We've covered this in previous episodes. Even Thomas Midgley Jr. knew that it was dangerous when he made the thing because he nearly gave himself lead poisoning. Well, he did. Yeah. Is this the guy that hired the guy from the other one? Um, <clears throat> yeah, it feels like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, Neil Hamilton is now denying that leaded petrol is dangerous, which it is. He also argued that jobs would be lost in his constituency if leaded petrol was banned, which is the exact same argument slash lie created by E. Bruce Harrison, another arsehole that we've quoted who is dead set on destroying the planet. So he's quoting two of the worst people to ever exist. Thank you, Neil Hamilton, for colouring your flag right there. We know exactly what you're all about. Hamilton resumed his activities as a supporter of pressure groups, including the Western Goals Institute, led by um, ex-Young Monday Club chairman Andrew V.R. Smith, and attracting the support of other parliamentarians, such as Sir Patrick Wall, Bill Walker, Nicholas Winterton, and the Reverend Martin Smith, who was on the Parliamentary Advisory Board. The Western Goals Institute achieved notoriety, by inviting Jean-Marie Le Pen, leader of the neo-fascist French national movement, and Alessandra Mussolini, Benito Mussolini's granddaughter, a deputy sitting for the Italian neo-fascist MSI to address fringe meetings at the 1992 Conservative Party conference. Just, oh, have we got anyone from the KKK? Let's get them over as well. It's a really good thing that, you know, politicians these days in America learn from this guy's mistakes and they don't ever show up at white nationalist or fascist organizations no. to speak. Never hang out with David Duke or anyone like that, you know? Uh... <laughs> hey, what Allegedly. are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to sue us? That's the truth. Um, the party chairman, Sir Norman Fowler, was so outraged and said that the Conservative Party was not related to Western Goals Institute. In the event, the meetings were cancelled. 
uh, for neither Le Pen nor Mussolini could come to Britain. What the fuck are you doing inviting someone called Mussolini to talk uh, at your conference? Are you fucking mad? Um, even the Tories are getting shit, uh, sick, sick of his shit at this point. It's really funny. Um, Ian Greer <laughs> Associates. Um, in 1985, he began working for Ian Greer Associates, lobbying on behalf of US Tobacco. Hamilton, together with Michael Brown, became an enthusiastic supporter of U.S. tobacco's product Skull Bandits, a teabag type of pouch of tobacco designed for chewing. Yeah, yeah. The, You've heard so of that? You don't get it in your teeth and shit. It's yeah, a little paper little coffee thing. filter hanging out from it, like a fish hooked. Um, the product was believed. <laughs> <laughs> the product was believed to cause serious risk of oral cancer, particularly for minors. Um, who were probably targeted by marketing, I'd imagine. Um, well, it's, the, yeah, it's super easy to use because it's, it's in like a little paper thing. You don't even yeah. get like chewing hey, tobacco is messy. Yeah. And it makes not... you throw up if you swallow it. Oh, wow. That's disgusting. Uh, <laughs> and the government was inclined to ban its import. Hamilton said he, is a, he uh, supported the introduction of skull bandits on libertarian grounds. That's his exact reasoning. And lobbied ministers, including Edwina Curry and David Mellor, to allow its introduction. The House of Commons Select Committee on Standards investigation stated, Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Brown had a number of contacts with ministers and officials as part of their campaign to influence government policy on skull bandits and said there was no evidence that any appropriate declaration was made. Hamilton was obliged to concede he had been wrong to make no reference to payment when I went to those meetings uh, with ministers. So they asked him if he'd been paid to do this. He said no. He was lying because, of course, he got paid. It's big tobacco. They pay everyone. Right. You know? Shitloads right. of money, I'd imagine. Yeah. In 19... It's it's not looking good, <laughs> is it, at this point? Like, he's kind of aligning himself with some really extreme people. He's, yeah, he's got his fingers in all kinds of bad things. Like, yeah, yeah. let's go let it gas and let's, uh, well, the only thing he said was, get, let's get rid of plastic. When when does he start thinking that we should make our ocean of plastic instead? Yeah, start eating plastic. Get it in your, get it in your bloodstream. It's good for you. Plastic, um, get it in you. <laughs> I'm waiting for him to do a U-turn on that. Start working for big plastic. Um, in June 1990, Hamilton was recruited by the right-wing Monday Club activist uh, Derek Lord to work for the Strategic Network International. By the way, things, you know, we talked about extreme uh, positions. It's about to get worse. Um, wow. a firm, uh, so he was recruited to the Strategic, sorry, Strategy Network International, a firm specially created to lobby against anti-apartheid movements and economic sanctions for apartheid South Africa's transitional government of Namibia set up in defiance of UN Resolution 435 on Namibian independence. Neil Hamilton, huge fan of apartheid. Dude, he's like for all the bad shit. Just like, yeah. Oh, is Satan real? Can we, can we get involved with Satan? Um, he's Friend, a he's, Welsh man, and he's doing he's, everything that Welsh people hate. It's almost geez. like he's trying to piss off our entire country, but also like, why are you doing all of this? It makes no sense. Apartheid, at that point in the late 80s, or the early 90s, everybody knew that the South African role of apartheid was coming to an end. So what are you doing attaching yourself to that movement? It's crazy. I feel like you'd so, have to try to be this much of an ass. I know. I know. He's going out of his way to find the worst things. Now let's move on to Margaret Thatcher's leadership contest. This is just 
fucking hilarious. Margaret Thatcher <laughs> appointed Hamilton um, a whip in July 1990, which basically he became part of her cabinet. Um, so we had some sort of position within the government okay. and stuff. That's what getting the whip is. Um, in November 1990, Michael Heseltine initiated a leadership challenge to Margaret Thatcher. Hamilton was told by the chief whip to stay neutral, but says he ignored this instruction. I naturally ignored this advice and fed all my intelligence into her campaign. I love how proud of being a fucking snitch he is. Wow. <laughs> this, Jesus. He's so stupid. Again, Thatcher's done at this point. She's been on. She's been in power 11 years. She is fucking ancient, and she's making really bad decisions, but he's like, I'm going to support the old ladies. Like, dude, even if you are just a careerist, this is the worst possible move right now. Um, he also said that he made the fateful suggestion that she interview each cabinet member individually, believing they would lack the resolve to tell her to the to her face that she must resign. Unfortunately, I had mis miscalculated. Yeah, you did, because they all fucking told her to go to her <laughs> face because they weren't scared of her anymore. Like, lady, you have done enough. This country is on its knees. Hamilton strongly encouraged Thatcher to persist at a meeting where Peter Lilly argued that Thatcher could not survive. Hamilton subjected him to a barrage of sarcasm and heckling in the middle of the meeting. On uh, the 21st of November 1990, Hamilton and like-minded colleagues met Thatcher at Downing Street. Thatcher did subsequently resign, and in the next round of election, Hamilton voted for John Major, the fucking turncoat. So... That's all you need to know about David Ham uh, Neil Hamilton and loyalty. So yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he's he's over there snitching and shit anyway, and yeah. Going after yeah, that's just, it's crazy. It's on, it's on par. Yeah, it's, it's on brand it's, for this guy. Yeah, he's just he's and also he's done nothing in his political career at this point other than like really kind of weird, slightly dodgy, corrupt things. So he's not like, oh, I'm going to introduce this initiative. I'm going to work with this person. I'm going to try and work with someone over on the opposite side of the aisle to get this piece of legislation through. No, he's just trying to make as much money as possible from big tobacco and leaded petrol and fucking apartheid of all things <laughs> from 1992 to 1994. Hamilton was the Minister for Deregulation and Corporate Affairs in John Major's government. He came under pressure to step down after the resignation of another minister, Tim Smith, on the 19th of October 1994, after Smith had admitted to taking money in the cash for questions affair. We'll get, for that, we'll get to that later. Facing the same allegations, Hamilton denied and then issued proceedings for libel, He, but he resigned on the 26th of October at the insistence of John Major. So he was like, I'm going to sue them. Uh, no, you're not. You're fired. Okay. All right. Um, um, approach to the Maastricht Treaty, which was kind of the birth of the EU. Denmark rejected the Maastricht Treaty on the um, 2nd of June 1992. Like some other Conservative members, Hamilton had also opposed the treaty and was a member of the Eurosceptic No Turning Back group. Despite this, Hamilton remained for a time loyal to the major government, which endorsed the treaty because it meant that there'd be a lot more money coming into the UK and a lot more opportunities for trade, which is kind of the whole point of government, really. Hamilton yep. urged his colleagues not to resign over the treaty and other issues. Um, so, yeah, he's kind of staying on board. I'm going to jump to the present day um, because I kind of want to get to the juicier parts of his life. Is it um, when he dated of, Kim Jong-il? Uh, unfortunately not, no, only his daughter. <laughs> no, as of 2022, he is the leader of uh, UKIP, the UK Independence Party, an ultra-right-wing political party whose sole stated goal was to get the UK out of Europe. 
and while a number of its MPs attended European Parliament and collected European paychecks. So they were like, we want to leave, but also, can you pay me now, please? Yeah. Um, despite the fact the UK has indeed left the European Union, there's somehow still a party. And although uh, they're, they're kind of like referenced in virtually a, like every political debate because, you know, fairness and balance, they have uh, a membership of 3,888 people, which is less than the combined followers I have on Instagram and Twitter. So they're, they're barely <laughs> a political force anymore. Um, so now that we've got that out of the way, he's part, he's the leader of UKIP, which is really kind of a non-entity at this point because its entire goal is, you know, it's done. And really the only reason it's around is so that racists have got somewhere to rant about foreigners, basically. So just in let's case be... it has to, it has to rise up again and stop you from making things better. Yeah, in case it has to, you know, really, really hit the European Union hard by calling them names or something. I don't really know what its use is at this point. But now let's get to the real major thing that Neil Hamilton is known for, his legal cases. Um, we'll start with the first major one, the BBC libel case, 1984 to 1986. This thing went on for two fucking years. <coughs> That's a case. That's a long case. <laughs> Um, on the 30th of June, January, sorry, 1984, a Panorama program, which is like a kind of a current affairs program, yeah. which until very recently was incredibly high, highly regarded in terms of its journalistic veracity. Like they exposed so much. So Panorama was where it's at. Um, the program was titled Maggie's Militant Tendency um, was broadcast. The program made a number of allegations regarding Hamilton's past and more recent activities. These included his attending and giving a fraternal speech in 1972 to the Movimento Sociale Italiano, those Italian neo-fascists again, uh, led by one of Benito Mussolini's ex-ministers and, you know, got close with his granddaughter and all that. Hamilton's membership of the Elden League and his involvement with the power elite faction of the Monday Club and the far-right activist, activist George Kennedy Young the former deputy director of MI5 and the chairman of the societies of free uh, individual freedom. So kind of slightly dodgy connections to very high ranking individuals in society now, but also like extreme right wing, slightly fascist movements. Really? The program also made the claim that Hamilton, this is the real, this is the part that really got him upset. The program also made the claim that Hamilton gave a Nazi salute in Berlin while messing around on a parliamentary visit in August 1983. A Nazi salute is a criminal offence in the Federa Federal Republic of Germany. Yeah, it's really not a good idea to do that shit. You know, I actually was uh, just learning about the, the new way that Germany's kind of been moving. They get that new uh, Germany First Party. Mm. Yeah, I, I watched a thing called The, the Wave based on mm. something I saw and his, uh, hightailing through history. Um, but anyway, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's weird because I never thought Germany would be moving back in a direction or having any of its citizens move back in a direction where that sort of hate was going to be okay because of things being illegal like that. Yeah, unfortunately, we are in a state now where because we've had the economic disasters we've had in the last fifteen years, um, you know. Think straight. The same thing happened after the Great Depression: rise of extremist politicians because people are looking for answers in all sorts of strange places. And unfortunately, it's led across Europe, Western world, and further afield. 
you know, some pretty extreme people have made their way into power and have made things ten times worse while also proclaiming that they're there to do good for the people of their country. Yeah, um, it feels a lot like 1920. It's yeah. repeating itself in 2020 only with cooler exactly. shit. Exactly, yeah. Only with iPhones now, so yeah. people can argue more. Better communication. Um, yes. Uh, Toasterzoid with a point, uh, conservatives wouldn't be a problem if my forceful coercion through electroshock therapy project was deemed unethical by the UN. Yeah, unfortunately, you can't <laughs> use cattle prods on Tories. Only in, like, brothels, I think. So, <clears throat> uh, in 1986, Hamilton and his fellow MP, Gerald Howarth, one of his closest friends, sued the BBC for libel, along with uh, Phil Pedley, a former chairman of the National Young Conservatives who had appeared on the program and said that Neil Hamilton gave the Nazi salute in, in Germany. Um, the Guardian newspaper highlighted Hamilton's admission in the Sunday Times in an article he wrote after the court case that he did a little salute with two fingers to his nose to give the impression of a toothbrush uh, moustache. So a Nazi salute, basically, is what he did. Even though he's saying, no, it wasn't. I was just doing a mustache thing. No, you were doing a Nazi salute, my friend. <clears throat> uh, the prosecution uh, was financed by Sir James Goldsmith and Tacky, the Spectator columnist, uh, both big Tories. So Neil Hamilton, you're going to find, has a lot of very, a lot of friends who just love to give him money for legal cases. Uh, David Davis, then a director at uh, internationally famous company Tate and Lyle, persuaded the company to donate a sum to the cause. Lord Harris of High Cross, who helped to finance Hamilton's future libel cases, donated approximately £100,000 to the court case. Wow. Uh, the Nazi style of picking your nose. That's a very good point. Maybe he was just picking his nose. <laughs> During the case, Hamilton said he saw himself as something as the Mike Yarwood of the Federation of Conservative Students, uh, for those that have no understanding of that reference, including me. Mike Yarwood is an English impressionist from the 1960s and 70s, um, and that frequently did impressions of public figures such as Frankie Howard, Harold Wilson, e um, Edward Heath, Ted Heath, Charles de Gaulle, and Enoch Powell. Uh, Hamilton said that he had... Oh, here we go. There's the final nail. Um, he had coloured himself black in 1982 to look like Idi Amin. Why would you dress up as Idi Amin? He was a fucking murderous cannibal. Um, was it Halloween? Well, I yeah, I mean, sh shouldn't probably do that even then. Yeah, 1982, blackface. Uh, unfortunately, the dancing minstrel show was still on television at this time. So, blackface, while people were like, oh, that doesn't feel right, it was still happening. Um, yes. And, you know, you're Neil Hamilton. You're a fan of apartheid. Why wouldn't you do blackface? You know, um, he also dressed as Canon James Owen on a boat on the River Cam. Jesus. Um, yeah, where'd you go from there? Blackface and apartheid and leaded petrol and oh, this Jesus, guy's this a winner. Thing. Nothing. There's nothing else. So blackface was the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, the the back the camel's back was broken a long time ago. At this point, the camel's bones are being mushed into the sand because he's done blackface at this point. Um, he said he would have 20 character witnesses. My main character witness was going to be Norman St. John Stevis. In a Sunday Times article, Hamilton denied that there was any malicious intent behind the salute. He also pointed out that, one, that the one person present at the incident, Julian Lewis, was a Jew, and that a number of his relatives were killed by the Nazis during the war. If that's the case, then why are you dishonouring their memories, Neil, you fucking arsehole? Um, yeah. 
in mid-trial and without cross-examining Hamilton, the BBC capitulated on, on the 21st of October 1986. The Director General, Alistair Milne, stated he was instructed to do so by the governors of the BBC. The corporation was directed to pay the men's legal costs. Hamilton and Howarth were awarded £20,000 each. And in the next edition of Panorama on the 23rd, uh, 27th of October, the BBC made an unreserved apology. The settlement of the case raised serious concerns regarding political pressure and the intimidation of witnesses. Before the BBC defence lawyers had an opportunity to interrogate Hamilton, the Board of Governors met during the trial and instructed the BBC Board of Management to settle the case. The BBC executives at this meeting expressed serious doubts about the decision going in their favour. It was pointed that by their it was pointed out to them by their own counsel that the BBC hadn't even begun its case at this point. So, sounds to me like someone's gotten on the phone. 1984, possibly a very short, angry woman who had a lot of power at that Put time. Squeeze on somebody. Yeah, putting the squeeze on her friends who ran the network and who gave her very favourable attention. The National Young Conservatives hinted, up a hinted at a stitch-up at the BBC. The chairman, Richard Fuller, told the Eastern Area Young Conservatives, I find it strange that they have uh, apparently decided to settle now when things appear to be going well because, yeah, Neil Hamilton, it's going to be going well because he's an idiot. Attention focused on the actions of Malcolm McAlpine, a cousin of Alistair McAlpine, the treasurer of the Conservative Party. He denied yesterday that he had appointed Mr. Hamilton that he could deliver the governors behind a settlement, which leads us on to witness tampering allegations. Yeah. Um, in God, the immediate... This guy is into all kinds of bad stuff. It's so fucking bad. It's it like the mob. Going. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's honestly, it's like he's in the mafia, not the Tories. Which, I mean, it's looking more and more like the same thing at this point. Um, in the immediate aftermath of the BBC settlement, allegations of witness intimidation abound. A BBC internal memorandum to the Board of Management claims some 17 witnesses had been intimidated into changing their testimony. A BBC um, stated. Nearly all the defence witnesses had been quiet, um, had had quiet word in their ears. Only two of three people connected with Tory politics who had given vital evidence for us now stuck to their testimony. Some previously expressed disgust at incidents they had witnessed. Now they claim to have not witnessed anything. Uh, yeah, it's like the mob. Mm. They've basically been silenced. How Selective and have... uh, <laughs> uh, amnesia there. Yeah, like, oh yeah, maybe I didn't mean that after all. Howarth and Hamilton said the case against Pedley would not be dropped, and Pedley said he would not be joining the BBC decision. So this is the kind of the former head of the young Tories who's like, no, I'm fucking going after these guys. So the Tories are now infighting, and the BBC have nothing to do with it. So it's even funnier for me at this point. <laughs> uh, the Financial Times reported a solicitor for Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Howarth said that uh, said later that their linked libel action against Mr. Philip Pendley would continue. Mr. Pendley indicated that he intends to continue the case. The media began to focus on the remaining unsettled case. The Guardian reported that the spotlight had swiveled to Phil Pendley, sorry, Pedley, the Tory defendant who remained adamant he would fight on alone, backed by independent funds, and, he claims, a wide range of Conservative supporters. The people within the Tory party are starting to not like Neil Hamilton. Pedley did not name the supporters, but then Chairman of Young Conservatives Richard Fuller pledged financial support to the fight, and in a meeting with Geoffrey Archer, 
deputy chair of the Conservative Party, Fuller resisted Archer's demands to back down. So he was pressured into re- like kind of getting rid of his support. So the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party is now trying to manipulate the law. That's terrible. Um, Labour accused the Conservative Central Office of organising a cover-up over the claims that Hamilton had given a Nazi salute um, on a visit to Berlin and sought questions that um, to then party chairman Norman Tebbit. Dale Campbell Savers claimed he had evidence in the form of a letter from Pedley to the former party chairman, John Sewell Gummer, demonstrating Conservative Central Office had contacted witnesses directly. Tebbit confirmed one witness had been in touch with CCO. I'm aware that one potential witness sought advice from the CCO, but was told that no advice could be given, so we didn't pressure them. It's fine. Don't go into that any further. Um, Tebbit accused Campbell Savers of making his accusations behind the cloak of parliamentary privilege and left the chamber to make his reply. He fucking ran out Ah. of the room to get away from it. My staff are appalled and disgusted. They're filled with contempt for a man who can make these sort of accusations of a criminal offence against a member of staff who, Mr. Campbell Savers, knows damn well is not guilty of it, except it seems he is at this point, you know, and you're trying to silence people to stop it from happening. Yeah, just because you don't want it to be true doesn't mean that it's not true. Exactly. This man almost certainly made the salute, and it's about to get even more interesting. On the 25th of October, the press reported new evidence of inappropriate witness contact. Later that day, Hamilton announced that he was dropping his action against Pedley. However, Pedley affirmed that he had no intention of withdrawing from the case. Hamilton's announcement failed to quell demands for an inquiry, and Campbell Savers denounced uh, Tebbit's tactic of making his statement outside the House of Commons chamber, accusing him of a deliberate ploy to avoid placing himself in contempt by misleading the House in a personal statement. Very, very true. He invited Tebbit to make a statement in the House. If he refuses, then the country will know that a conspiracy of silence is being engineered by senior figures to hide the truth. The Tories covering something up? I'm shocked. I feel like Um, that happens a lot. It seems to happen a lot. More information appeared in the press alleging witness interference, including the Hogan Memorandum, the internal BBC documents listing the witnesses who had changed their accounts. The Independent newspaper revealed the existence of a taped conversation of a Tory witness being shaken rigid by central office's suggestion that the Berlin events had not happened and no other witnesses would substantiate or give evidence about those alleged incidents. And the witness was told that no other witness would back his account. So, you know, there's nobody behind the grassy knoll. You're just imagining the gun smoke. Just leave yeah. it alone. It was one crazy lone guy in a book repository. So, you know, uh, I, you know, it's, it's so they were saying that he went out and made that this statement, but it was horseshit because he wasn't under oath, basically, yeah. right? He was it, like, I, I am like- going to make a statement and then left because he knew that if he made it under oath, he'd lose his job and probably go to prison for lying. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so big deal. It's kind of like on the January 6th committee when yeah. that one lady testified and they were like, no, she, that's not true. That never happened. Yeah, cool. Come on in here and tell us under oath. No, thank you. No. <laughs> or like uh, Steve Bannon, basically. Pretty oh. much everything Steve Bannon ever said. To um, that, so that guy's yeah. next. He is. He's. <laughs> he's going. He's going down so hard. Um, the witness said that uh, 
This was like a bad dream, Campbell Savers claimed that there was proof of BBC nobbling and announced that he was sending his evidence to Michael Savers, the Attorney General. In the Commons, Campbell Savers said, Central Office set about an elaborate, uh, an elaborate attempt to interfere directly with potential witnesses. Attempts were made to manage and rig statements by David Mitchell. I repeat what I have said previously, but additionally, I am able to say today that there is a tape in existence that confirms the nature of the conspiracy to hide the truth and which identifies persons. Today, I have sent a transcript of that tape to the Attorney General. I have to inform you, Mr. Speaker, that it is but one of two tapes. I await a transcript for the second tape. That's fucking terrifying for the Tories right there. Um Press interest turned to Hamilton's past statements about the Berlin visit, over which Tory witnesses uh, were alleged to have uh, been pressured to say they um, had not seen goose-stepping, goose-stepping now as well, and oh. Nazi salutes. Hamilton had given a categorical denial he had made a Nazi salute in Berlin to John Sewell Gummer, the party chairman in 1984. Dear John, oh God, they're breaking up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I make it absolutely clear that whilst in Berlin, I did not do any goose stepping, <laughs> nor did I at any time give Nazi salutes. Indeed, I have always thought the latter was a criminal offence in the Federal Republic. He definitely didn't write that. That's written by a fucking lawyer, right? Yeah. That's like, oh, you know why I wouldn't do it? Because I know for certain it's a crime and I'm, <laughs> I know about crimes. I'm smart, me. Do you think that um, that was written by the lawyer after they tried to say, well, he didn't know he couldn't do that? They're yeah, like, yeah, I ignorance so. isn't 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 okay. Ignorance is no excuse. Oh, yeah, well, in that a, case, it's not to get you out of a crime. Yeah, like, he didn't do it. He definitely went. He was like, oh, wasn't it funny when he did that? Um, you know, that's a crime, right? Uh, yeah, I knew it was a crime. Didn't happen. What are you talking about? I didn't. I didn't do any Nazi salutes. I <laughs> uh, just tried a really bad Jedi mind trick. But writing in the Sunday Times, Hamilton admitted making a little salute a little salute and this gets really much worse in the reichstag so he did a nazi salute in the german parliament building what the fuck are you thinking jeez of all the places you could do it this guy's just seat of power bad. in germany so bad Hamilton's admission had the effect of reaffirming the testimony of the two witnesses who had alleged he had given a Nazi salute in Berlin and exposing those witnesses who had reversed their position. Hamilton and Howarth immediately reversed their earlier position and dropped their libel action against Pedley. They sought the, um, extracting an, They said that extracting an apology with Pedley was not worth the bother. He's not going to apologise because you fucking did it, Neil. <laughs> On the 3rd of December 1986, Pedley refused the offered settlement terms. I love this guy. And asked for a hearing in open court. Ooh. Justice Simon Brown ruled that Hamilton and Howarth be debarred from alleging Pedley's words were libel and should pay Pedley's cost. I have never liked a Tory more than I do old Pedley here. This guy is fucking <laughs> like, no, I'm not accepting your apology. I don't want that money. I want more money and I'm going to smear it all over the press. Like, yes, you fucking get that. We need more people like that that are like, no, no, no. I am not doing it. Grassy not Noel engaging the in the make-believe. <laughs> Grassy Knoll was my nickname in college. Nice toasterzoid. Um, Pedley made a statement from the steps to say that he stood by his words in the Panorama program and restated that he had never said 
that the MPs were Nazis. And that's the important thing. He rather that their behavior was a pattern that would harm the party. And in the case of Hamilton's Berlin behavior, the final report accused Hamilton of batty eccentricity. Uh, for all those young people out there that don't understand what batty eccentricity means, eccentricity means uh, it's a phrase people use before we discovered the word cunt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on, on the more substantive allegations, Pedley said he reiterated the points made in the report and called uh, had been called into question. I consider I have been uh, I have the responsibility to vindicate the good work done by by the members of the committee. Several have endured abuse and hate mail following publication of their names in the Young National Front paper Bulldog and other extremist newspapers. Neil Hamilton seems to be drawing a lot of support from extremist near-terrorist organizations, doesn't he? That's why, really interesting. Why do these extreme right-wing fascists always kind of dox everybody and send out their stuff so assholes send them death threats and things? Exactly. Jeez. I know. It's, it's, the, it's the same tactic over and over again. We're not killing them, but we're helping you to. Yeah. Um, I hope this will now cease together with setups and the surveillance and harassment of other witnesses, in my case, by private security companies who had been hired by the Tories to surveil this guy and dig up dirt. They couldn't find anything, and he won. So thank nice. God for this. Now mm. let's get to his second famous libel case, the Cash for Questions inquiry, which has got a really interesting title, and I think I'll explain it more as we go on. On the 20th of October, 1984, The Guardian published an article which claimed that Hamilton and another minister, Tim Smith, had received money in the form of cash in brown envelopes. That is shady as fuck, man. Did it happen yeah. in a car park at night? Is yeah, that they, where they got the money? And it wasn't a direct handoff. Somebody just left it in a trash can and they fished it out later. <laughs> Put a chalk X on the trash can <laughs> to make sure they knew. Um, it claimed the money was paid to the men by Mohammed Al-Fayed, the owner of the exclusive London department store, uh, department store Harrods, and father of Dodi Fayed, who would uh, go on to die with Princess Diana in that crash in Paris several years later. In return, the men were to ask questions on behalf of the of Mohammed Al-Fayed in the House of Commons. Smith admitted his guilt and resigned immediately. Hamilton claimed inno uh, innocence, but was forced to resign five days later on October the 25th, 1994. Hamilton, being the fucking idiot he is, brought legal action for libel against The Guardian. Hamilton joined Ian Greer, a parliamentary lobbyist, as a co-plaintiff uh, co in the process. The Bill of Rights from 1689 was uh, amended by the Defamation Act of 1996 to allow statements made in Parliament to be questioned in court. Neil Hamilton's ego forced a change in a law that was nearly 400 years old. That is, that's, that's something stupid. right there. Yeah, that's, that's really <laughs> fucking stupid. Oh my God. Um, on the 30th of September 1996, the day before the start of the libel trial, Hamilton and Greer settled, citing a conflict of interest and a lack of funds. <laughs> the Guardian greeted the Hamilton collapse with the headline, a liar and a cheat. They don't care. 
This is like, fuck you. Do you want to sue us again? You haven't got any money, so why not? <laughs> um, Alan Russ Bridger, editor of The Guardian, said the decision by Neil Hamilton and Ian Greer must be one of the most astonishing legal cave-ins in the history of the law of libel and called for the issues uh, to be examined by Sir Gordon Downey, the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards and the Inland Revenue. Ooh, scary. Uh, that's, that's our version of the IRS. Ah. You're okay. getting the tax people involved now. We're getting Al Capone hey. levels of crazy. There you um, go. <laughs> uh, so they paid, uh, they each paid £7,500 towards the paper's legal cost. All the cash requesting evidence was sent to Sir Gordon Downey, the Parliamentary Commission for Standards. Uh, the cash requesting parliamentary inquiry took place in 1997. They've, they've done this themselves. They've brought this on themselves by doing the legal action and then just dropping it because they realized that they were fucked. And when you do that, People are like, why did you drop it before he went to case? Oh, because you saw the evidence they had. Right, okay. We want to look into that now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah let's just give them a bone. They won't. Yeah, let's just let's lead them down the river. Why not? You know, mm -hmm. parliamentary inquiry took place in 1997. Um, Hamilton vowed that if the Downey report found against him, he would resign. And uh, that don't threaten happen. me with a good time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Edwina Curry. Uh, a former health minister gave evidence. She told the inquiry that in May 1988, Hamilton had been uh, unmoved by a set of photographs that depicted uh, smoking-related cancers, uh, that is, harm to young people, uh, which might have contact with his product that he was promoting at the time. Hamilton argued that the pictures were irrelevant. And I kind of agree with him, um, actually, because in terms of this inquiry about cash for questions, it is completely irrelevant that he was like... It's cancer. I don't care. Um, but I'd say, you know, you would call it a character assassination. But at this point, what character is left to assassinate? Yeah. Really? I mean, know, it's piling on. It, it really is piling on and it is irrelevant, but just shows that he's kind of a bit of a, well, more than a bit of a prick at this point. Both Hamilton and Michael Brown had received £6,000 in honorarium and hospitality from Skull Bandits. In December 1989, the sale of Skull Bandit products was banned in the UK by the Secretary of State for Health, Kenneth Clark. Good on you, Ken Clark. Yeah. Downey reported that he found the evidence against Hamilton in the case and Alfired compelling. Hamilton received over £25,000 and had deliberately misled Michael Heseltine, then president of the Board of Trade in October 1994, when he said he had no financial relationship with Ian Greer, so he lied to Michael Heseltine's face. In a phone conversation, Hamilton gave absolute assurance to Heseltine that there was no such relationship, but he had received two payments from Greer in 1988 and 89, totaling £10,000, so again, lied. Hamilton had asked for payments in kind so the money would not be taxable. This is why the Inland Revenue are getting involved. He also failed to register his stays at the Hotel Ritz Paris and Alfayed's Castle in Scotland in 1989. So he's dodging tax now and getting stays in five-star hotels. So, hey. yeah. This I mean, guy's on a roll. He is. I just get it all. Get all the corruption. Uh, while all this was going on and the Tories had descended to such levels of sleaze, partly thanks to Ian Hamilton and all this shit, that they were demolished in the next general election by Tony Blair's Labour Party. Prior to the 1997 election, Hamilton determined to try to retain his parliamentary seat. His majority at the 1992 general election, the previous one, had been almost 16,000 votes, which is a substantial amount in this country. It's, it might not sound like a lot, but 
I mean, in in a typical constituency in this country, there might only be sixty thousand registered voters. So to have like okay. almost a third of them as a majority, that's like that's a big lead of your nearest. And they're, they're, it's not like there are two parties as well. There'll be uh, the Tories, there'll be Labour, there'll be Lib Dem, there'll be the Green Party, there'll be like that's uh, a big deal. A bunch to, of other much yeah, exactly. So he had a 16,000 majority in 1992. However, in 1997, Tatton was considered the fourth safest conservative seat in all of Britain out of over 250 seats. It was the fourth okay. safest. Um, Hamilton was under investigation by the Parliamentary Standards Commission. And as part of the cast of questions uh, inquiry, some of the party members thought he should stand down after the collapse okay. of the case against the Guardian, which, you know, I mean, it makes sense, right? Disquiet in the local association became public, but the majority gave him the benefit of the doubt. Hamilton resisted the pressure from senior conservatives and conservative central council uh, office, sorry, to stand down. Legendary political interviewer and one of the scariest men in television history, Jeremy Paxman, who... I just I want to show you some of his interviews at some point in time. He is completely ruthless and goes for the jugular every single time, even when he's got people like Sting see, on his see, show. But he he's not like uh, the type that just smashes. Like okay, <clears throat> so a lot of people like people that they say can shut down their um, interview. Yeah, they can really get after people, and then you listen to the thing, and all they do is talk over them and do dumb shit. And yeah, that's no. not this case. No, no. Like, um, it's legitimate. Paxman, Paxman is terrifying. There's an interview he does with, I think it might have been Ken Clark, actually, where um, he was talking about Ken Clark using his position as, like, chief whip to overrule someone. And he says, so, um, did you threaten to overrule him? And Ken Clark, I had a conversation with the gentleman. Blah, blah, blah. Did you threaten to overrule him? Uh, we had this discussion. Did you threaten to overrule him? He asked it 21 times <laughs> before Ken Clark goes, yeah. All right. Right? Just answer um, the question, sir. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then there was one time where um, he had Sting on and Bono on one program, on a political program about the climate and stuff. And yeah. he was he took Bono to task because Bono had apparently paid for a seat on a plane for his favorite hat to be flown out to wherever he was playing a concert at. And Sting, he took Sting to task. And he said, and you, Sting, you've been a, a kind of an environmental advocate for a very long time. You take first class and private jets everywhere to lecture people on the uh, the climate, don't you? He said, I know it's popular for people to go after celebrities because they're high profile, but we're making a difference. And Jerry Paxman went, I'm not going after celebrities, sir. I'm only going after you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and like every single time. People have wilted in his presence. Jeremy Paxman stated that he had the inside line from Conservative Central Office who had begged Neil Hamilton not to stand, but in a gesture of overwhelming arrogance, he refused to go quietly. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. Sorry, Paxman ran over. I just find that man hilarious. Um, on the 8th of April, 1997, Hamilton was chosen as a Conservative candidate for Tatton. 182 voted for um, him to take the, the kind of go for the seat 35 voted against and a hundred people abstained so a load of people like just not even touching this one um the observer commissioned icm polls in the constituencies of the three conservative candidates tainted by scandal and seeking re-election neil hamilton alan stewart and piers merchant 
Both Stuart and Merchant were found to have support consistent with the party's standing, which wasn't great at the time. But in Hatton, there was massive hostility to Neil Hamilton, and he lost the fourth safest Tory seat in the general election and then gave a resignation speech, which was the most pathetic and angry thing you'll ever see <laughs> while people booed him from the stands. Ooh. It was so funny. <laughs> um, on the 3rd of July 1997, the inquiry found Hamilton guilty of taking cash for questions. No shit. The Independent wrote Sir Gordon, contrary to Hamilton's confident expe uh, expectations, had no compunction about concluding that he did indeed take cash in brown fucking envelopes and called <laughs> on the new party leader to expel the miscreants, which is what I call one of uh, my Crohn's disease flare-ups. Expelling, um, expelling the miscreants? Yeah, that's, that's a possible. <laughs> Excuse me, darling, I've got to go and expel some miscreants. Um <laughs> <laughs> Hamilton and Smith also found guilty. Brown and Michael Grills were harshly criticised. I'm sure they just drank some of Bear's piss to make themselves feel better. Ah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if Hamilton and Smith had remained in Parliament, Downey said he might have uh, recommended long periods of suspension for both. Hamilton rejected these, founding these findings, whereas Smith, who had stood down, accepted them, apologised for his conduct, and retired from politics altogether. Just like, I am ashamed of what I did, I'm gone. If only Neil Hamilton had done that. He's still he's the leader of UKIP now, to this very day, 30 uh. years later. Um, libel action against Mohammed Al-Fayed. So he's not happy with the, the failing of two cases. He wants a third go now. On the 16th of January 1997, Al-Fayed appeared in addition... Uh, in the edition of Dispatch's documentary series on Channel 4, he claimed that Hamilton had demanded and had accepted cash payments of up to £110,000, Harrods gift cards, and a free holiday at the Hotel Ritz in 1987 in return for asking questions in Parliament on behalf of Harrods. Uh -huh. While Hamilton did not deny the holiday, he continued to maintain that he was innocent of improper po uh, conduct. The fucking balls on this guy. <laughs> Well, yeah, I took it, but I did. Well, it was okay. <laughs> yeah, it was fine. I didn't do it. Leave Mohammed alone, Neil. Yeah, for God's sake, man. Also, Mohammed Al Fayed is one of the richest men in Britain, and Neil Hamilton has no fucking money left. What yeah, are you doing? Out. Uh. Yeah, dude. On the 31st of July, 1998, Hamilton's uh, action was approved for a court listing. Funds for the action were donated by Lord Harris of Highcross, the Earl of Portsmouth. And Tacky, again, this fucking columnist, who raised £50,000. Other contributors to the fund included Simon Heffer, Norris McWitter, Peter Clark, all of them fucking Tory names, Lord Bell, Giles Brandreth. These, are, these, are, these sound like fictional characters from a fucking parody film. Yeah. I, I swear to God. Biggest dickest... Biggest dick, yes, it's it's that <laughs> level. And Jared Howarth, uh, Hamilton's co-plaintiff in the BBC case, which went so well. Um, <laughs> some Conservative MPs, approximately forty out of one hundred and sixty-five, also made contributions. In total, approximately four hundred and ten thousand pounds was raised. What dirt does Neil Hamilton have on these people that they keep giving him fucking money, dude? He's got yeah. There's some pictures with some horrible things See, he really must do honestly i was waiting for you to tell me that he's friends with uh that that uh jeffrey guy that disappeared himself oh um, i mean didn't i mean did, did yeah um was that lord lucan you're talking about um jeffrey mm -hmm. 
uh oh epstein yeah epstein right sorry yeah um <laughs> probably a little bit before his time but had he met him i think they would have been on similar wavelengths to be honest um the jury trial commenced in november 1999 hamilton and his wife were cross-examined by um george carmen qc george carmen is a fucking shark he's legendary in this country for like being the most aggressive cross-examiner in history okay. and uh yeah Carmen put uh, to Hamilton that he had acted correctly to demand and then take £10,000 from Mobile Oil in 1989 for tabling an amendment to a financial bill. Oh, just not just even Mohammed Al-Fayed at this point. He's fucking big oil as Goodness. well. At the time, Hamilton was a member of Commons Select Committee on Finance and he's accepting bribes. Al-Fayed said that Hamilton had taken the money in either brown envelope cash payments or through Ian Greer, who I guess, I don't know, maybe he wore a, ground, a brown bag or something <laughs> to kind of get the effect going that he is a brown bag. He was Hamilton's... in a brown trench coat with a hat on. and he just Yeah, kind of exactly. He's all brown so that he knows what's going on. Um, <laughs> I've never received a penny from Mr. Fayed. I have never asked, uh, said Hamilton. His counsel, in closing comments, argued that Al Fayed's uh, assertions had destroyed his client's reputation. That's fucking hilarious. Yeah, that's um, what did it. Yeah, that's he's definitely got one left, I, I swear. On the 21st of December, 1999, just in term for Chris, in time for Christmas and the millennium, uh, the jury unanim unanimously ruled in favor of Muhammad Al-Fayed, declaring Hamilton corrupt. A year later, Hamilton lost his appeal against the this, this decision and was refused leave to appeal to the House of Lords on the 2nd of April, 2001. On the 22nd of May 2001, unable to pay his legal fees and with costs accounting to some three million pounds, Neil Hamilton declared bankruptcy and was discharged from bankruptcy just three years later. So it was like quick holiday where he doesn't have any money, you know? Yeah. Okay. He's now, got an envelope somewhere. Yeah, they'll have been a bunch of brown envelopes. And now let's get to the various ways in which Neil and his kind of really weird wife, Christine, um, had to turn to to support their lavish lifestyles in these years by what's known in this country as completely humiliating television appearances where you get paid a lot of money to make yourself look like an idiot. Aha! Aha! On the 9th of May 1997, Hamilton and his wife Christine appeared on the current affairs satire quiz, Have I Got News For You, which uh, is legendary in this country. It's been going for about 35 years at this point. It's really, really good. And unfortunately, it's become famous recently for... Uh, they had Jimmy Savile on, and they were asking him questions like, Jimmy, uh, are you popular? He's like, oh, yeah, I'm famous and I'm feared in girls' schools up and down the country. And, and there's a moment where both hosts who know the rumours, because this is before it was proven, but the rumours, they're both like... <sighs> You know, like they can't believe what they're hearing that he's this brazen anyway yeah. the quiz show it's been a lot of points like that over the years where they've had controversial people on it's actually re resulted in some really interesting stuff um the host angus deaton presenter of the panel game show wore a white suit instead of his usual brown one this was a humorous reference to martin bell the former journalist who had beaten hamilton in the election and who wore the exact same suit the night of the 1997 general election and he'd also worn it a bunch of times when Neil Hamilton was doing TV appearances. And um, Martin Bell would just show up and just hijack the interview and say, where did you get your money from, Neil? Is this from Mobile? Is it from Big Tobacco? Is this from Mohammed Al-Fayed? Um, as a further taunt at the end of the show, 
the Hamiltons live on television were handed their fee in a brown envelope. Yeah, that's awesome. That's amazing. At one point, Hamilton quipped, I found it's much better to make political jokes than be one. Too late. Um, <laughs> on the 30th of March, 2000, Hamilton appeared on the Ali G Show on Channel 4. Oh, nice. Amazing. For a satirical comedic interview where he was seen to be sharing what appeared to be a joint with presenter Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, Ali G character. This is the 30th of March, 2000. Elon Musk ripped off Neil Hamilton. <laughs> By smoking that joint, uh, um, yeah, but, yeah, but Rogan's not satire. I mean, no, he's not. He's, he's completely serious. <laughs> In 2001, Hamilton appeared on When Louis Met, a documentary series created by Louis Theroux, who you can now find as the "My Money Don't Jiggle Jiggle It Folds" man. That's that's <laughs> him doing that rap all over social media. Um, L- Louis Theroux's documentary series are amazing. He's very disarming because he's about six foot five. Um, he's like, yeah, he's huge. He's he's very very Jewish, and he's like he's very thin and quite geekish in a way, and yeah. the way he acts and stuff. So he's very disarming. People see this really tall beanpole of a guy, and they're like, oh yeah, he's harmless. But actually he completely disarms people and they say the most ridiculous things without realizing because they've been some sort of hypnotized by this kind of charming, almost inoffensive looking guy, but he gets the worst stuff out of people. It's amazing. Um, In the 2001 episode, um, he described, uh, what was this through during which he described himself and his wife as professional objects of curiosity, which they'd become at this point. There's a really awkward scene where Neil Hamilton leaves the room. I don't know if he's making a cup of tea or something. And Christine shuffles along the sofa closer to Louis Theroux and starts, they're all drunk at this point, and starts doing one of the clumsiest, like, come-ons you'll ever see. Like, she starts, like, touching him and, like, yeah. flirting with him and stuff. And um, she seems to forget that there are cameras in the room because there are cameras set up everywhere. And she just starts, like almost mounting louis theroux and it's really uncomfortable uh and yeah basically was at it that an point actor it was like for real she was drunk and did that i think it was real wow. i don't see i've seen her acting and it feels real too good and... to, be, to be acting <laughs> yeah and at this point louis theroux is like maybe 25 christine hamilton's like in her late 50s so it's yeah. like it's weird and yeah. They're all, yeah, it's just... He's trying to climb the beanpole. Yeah, it felt really uncomfortable. Since yeah. that moment, the Hamiltons have appeared in pantomimes and television chat shows and programs uh, such as The Weakest Link and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and Ready Steady Cook. All of this so that they can keep getting paid for being... Basically, they can't work in politics properly anymore. Um, he appeared on a celebrity edition of Mastermind on Boxing Day 2004 and didn't do very well. Mastermind's like a, a big brain a quiz. Quiz thing. show, yeah. Yeah. He appeared in the Rocky Horror Picture Show wearing a six-inch six stiletto heels, a basque, suspenders, and stockings. However, he declined to appear on Big Brother or Celebrity Wife Swap because he felt that it was undignified. He was worried his wife was going to really swap. Yeah, she was going to full on go for it. She wasn't just like, this is the way I like to do things. I like to clean on this way. No, she was going to climb into bed with yeah. whoever was on the show. Oh, I totally Amazing. misunderstood. 
<laughs> it was I was drunk. It's fine. So now it's an excuse. Um, in 2005, and this is where we'll get to we'll get to leave this. Hamilton appeared on the Johnny Vegas show, 18 Stone of Idiot, where he danced in a perspex box while Johnny Vegas and a member of the public poured buckets of dead fish over his head. And that's where we leave Neil Hamilton, covered in dead fish, uh, while a drunken northern comedian makes fun of him. What the hell kind of shows do you guys have over there? We Johnny Vegas is the best, but um, yeah. Uh, We have a lot of, uh, particularly in the 2000s, we had a lot of very weird shows that were designed to humiliate people. And um, I should point out that Johnny Vegas is the antithesis of what you would imagine a glamorous comedian would be like. He's very loud. He's very northern. And um, he was discovered doing a show, a live stage show, where he would come on stage at like a comedy club and there'd be a potter's wheel and okay. the music from Ghost would start. Oh, my love. Yeah. And he'd come out and he'd, he'd already be drunk at this point, right? He'd have a can of beer in his hands and he'd berate the audience like, you're up here laughing at me and I'm just trying to put on an artistic show and stuff. <laughs> and he'd start berating them. And then eventually, after about five minutes of that, he'd sit down, music would start playing. He'd use the beer from his can to like make the the clay more malleable. Okay. And like as he got on, he'd be like doing the whole like he'd be you'd be like, wow, this is actually good. This is good pottery. And then like he'd start to look a little bit pale and start to get a bit worse. And then he'd vomit into Uh-oh. the thing that he was turning oh, into pottery. No. Oh. But he'd infuse the pot uh. with the vomit. <laughs> No, I know, <laughs> and that was how Johnny Vegas was discovered. And since then, he's only gone on to weirder and weirder things. That Dustin oh, Hoffman man. got a Lifetime Achievement Award, an award ceremony that was broadcast, and he was like secret friends with Johnny Vegas. But he dragged Johnny Vegas up on stage without telling him in advance, and he was berating him. He's like, "Look at you! You're 30 years old, and you're still 18 stone. You still eat like a child. You're drunk now." Your, your tuxedo doesn't fit you. Your boobs are poking out and stuff and just berating him on stage. The audience is laughing and Johnny Vegas just goes, all I can be is who I am. <laughs> and uh, the audience Nailed just it. burst into tears. <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, so if you get a chance to watch Johnny Vegas's stand-up, it's all like quiz show appearances. He's really weird. He, never, he does occasionally laugh at himself. He's lost a lot of weight, but um, he realized that Neil Hamilton was basically desperate for money so he was like what can we get away with so we'll just cover him in dead fish that's okay this is two black mirror references in this show yeah that's (laughs) a lot like that uh where they're riding the bikes and they they get that uh heavy set people show where they just make them do dumb Mm -hmm. shit is that exactly actually sounds exactly like the show (laughs) it's funny you should mention that because um before black mirror and before all of the stuff because charlie brooker's been doing stuff for years around satire in television. He used to do a thing called Screen Wipe, which you can find on YouTube, where he analyzes TV shows from a satirical point of view. And before that, he had a, a, a website, a very early website, which was hugely popular, called TV Go Home. And I've got a first edition of the book, and it was a weekly. He'd do one a week. It'd be like a, a fake TV listing. So it'd be like extreme television, 12.05 p.m., wolf fucking. And, uh, and stuff like that. Just like all these weird programs, landmine hopscotch and just really oh. offensive things like that. But um, he said that he had to stop doing it because in about 2000, a TV show was created on Channel 5 called Touch the Van, 
or or hold the van or something like that. And basically, five to ten people would stand around the van holding it. The last person left standing after. I think you guys have win civilian. Like yeah. yeah, we're tickets to some shit. Yeah, yeah. And, well, actually, they won the van. That was the okay. point of the show. Like, if they, the last person standing won the van. And uh, there was one um, episode where someone had to run off the stage because they they'd shit themselves. Ooh. And um, at that point, Charlie Brooker was like, "I knew I couldn't do satire anymore because television had caught up to yeah. satire, so I had to move on to dark horror." Yeah. Really, you know. The, I think the thing that messes me up the most now is realizing that I was laughing at stuff with people that was satire and because it was satire and funny. And there was other yeah. people that were laughing for totally different reasons. I know. I and know. It's so dark. Now they run the place. Yep. And now <clears throat> they've and now turned now the world real. into satire. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> so um, getting back to Neil Hamilton, what do you think of his career in okay. the sky? Uh, immediately, I want to go like, Where's, where's my, there it is. Real high. Yeah. Because <laughs> just dumb shit after dumb yeah. shit after dumb. I know. And, and like, like, it's just full idiot. It's great as well because when I was looking for someone, I was like, I wanted a classic idiot. You know, like someone who never learned. And Neil Hamilton, not only was he on the wrong side of history in his parliamentary career with all of the different things that he was supporting and trying to get money from, but also like he kept making the same mistake over and over again and ran out of money and had to humiliate himself on national television to get any kind of living. And now he's back in politics off the back of basically the UKIP party is built on hate. There's no yeah. two ways about it. So it's that's where we are globally. Yeah. Uh, I think unfortunately. So, yeah. So he's a God. classic idiot in the most basic term of the word. It was like, he sought out what <laughs> some dumb shit I could do now. Like, I know. What's really horrible? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it, yeah, geez. And he just kept doing it. And then mm. he'd find new ways to do it. and Yeah, and make money from it. I'm I'm going high with him. I'm going to have to go all the way with a 94. I know he didn't kill anybody directly, but mouth cancer from those bandits oh, yeah. is like a legit thing. And it was like he did it on purpose. Yeah, he must and, have known. And like to deny that leaded petrol was dangerous that's like dude at that point everyone knew it was dangerous and to me people in positions of power to make decisions and yep. influence things and normalize horrendous behavior and dumb crap like that are exactly. the worst because yep. it's making other people want to be that way exactly yeah. you know this is the people that you look up to your your government and whatnot and yeah, they're training the youth how to behave, and that is mm -hmm. not the way to behave. No, they're supposed to be statesmanlike, and they're supposed to be leaders. You know, these are people yes. who are chosen by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, in some circumstances, of people, millions, and they have a an obligation as leaders to behave in ways that benefit the people that elected them. And you do not benefit the people that elected you by giving them mouth cancer or trying to get them exposed to leaded fuel or like supporting a, the apartheid regime and taking money from big oil and keeping all them out of terrible you know, shit. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, no, no, it's over so awful. Like, yeah. And you know, God, now I kind of want to give him a 96. <laughs> I feel like I feel like 94 is really high score. It's funny because when I went into researching Neil Hamilton, I knew about the court cases because he, it was just all over the 
the news for months like he was humiliated across this nation however i didn't know about the political stuff i knew he was welsh i knew he was a tory so immediately i was like well, something's gone wrong there but like the all of the stuff he supported and i was like yeah. oh my god this is terrible stuff trying it's to introduce bad. the yeah and he went from like trying to get rid of the internal combustion engine and plastic <laughs> yeah the like other direction yeah, yeah. The worst possible turnaround you could possibly have. So yeah, I'm will, still will, comfortable with a 94. Yeah, I will. I will take 94 for Neil Hamilton. I hope he doesn't try and sue us. I hope he's over that by now. But financially, I think he realizes that, like, uh, there, there, he's made so many enemies that you know what's the point? Just enjoy what left, what time you have left. And actually, I mean, they, there was a point in time where they were ubiquitous on television, the Hamiltons, and it was like it was always really kind of sad because they were always a bit of a punchline and I don't think they realized it because they thought they were just like, oh, we're, you know, we're fun objects of curiosity. And actually, no, you've become a flogging post for people. Yeah. So, Well, that kind of makes me sad. Yeah, but like he's back in politics now, I guess, and it's UKIP, well, so I will never get on board with that. But at least he's like active doing a thing again. I'll, I I'll You know what? I'll go straight out and say if he does be litigious and try to sue me, good luck. <laughs> You're only yeah. getting debt. Yeah, you're only getting debt from us, especially thanks to Anchor with their monetization. <laughs> but yeah, um, so yeah, I think um, Neil Hamilton, because I, I I had wanted to do like a Welsh idiot for a while, and there are a few people I could have covered, and I thought, well, why not look at politics? Because there are a lot of Welsh politicians who have had massively huge positive impacts on the UK. So you've got someone on like a Nairn Bevan who created and founded the NHS, which has saved the lives of tens slash hundreds of millions of people over the years since it was endorsed and and stopped people from falling into poverty because of healthcare debts and stuff like that. Um, and then you've got someone like David Lloyd George, who was the UK's prime minister during the First World War and held the country together in a Churchill-like state. And, you know, and at Nyren Bevin's wife, who helped found the Open University, so people who didn't have huge levels of qualifications or indeed huge amounts of money could go to university and get a university education from the comfort of their home or older people who'd never had a chance to go to university got a chance to study something that they'd always been passionate about so these are great welsh political figures and i was just like i'm sure there's one out there and i was like neil hamilton oh so perfect so you yeah. found him <laughs> I found him reasonably quickly. So it was really good to be able to research him because, like I said, I, I didn't know half of the stuff about the apartheid stuff and the yeah, that's just all of weird. the dodginess. It's so weird. It's such a weird thing to tie himself to. And um, so what did you... Stuff I know is dumb. I know. It's, it just it was so distressing and weird to see. And also, um, you know, obviously Mel Gibson, one of the most notorious people still active in hollywood somehow both of these people still active yeah which is interesting he, honestly mel gibson was like my favorite like my role model yeah. and, i mean god that was a bad role <laughs> now i know where i went I, wrong yeah i mean it's funny because i liked him as well but you know you, you've you never really i guess you never know anyone do you and uh, people obviously keep their private lives private and that's totally fine but um I, I really, for a long time, more. yeah, uh, I, maybe Mel Gibson should have done a better job of keeping it private. But yeah, I, I feel like, um, you know, he, he could have been so much more 
had he just yeah. like gotten his life together. You know, we could have seen really good, really introspective work, but you know, there's still time for both of these people. I mean, Neil Hamilton's getting old now, and Mel's getting a bit old as well, but still time. I feel like Mel is so smart and so talented mm. that if he would have just gotten a little bit of mental health care and stayed yeah. away from alcohol, he could have changed the world somehow. I, I feel he like he definitely could have made the kind of art that... Because also, another thing we didn't talk about was um, Apocalypto, which was another oh, yeah. film he directed. I skipped that was that a really, really good film. It's Again, it's really violent. Yes. Um, and depicts like the uh, the Aztec civilization and um, like a, a native tribe and like enslavement and violence and stuff like that. But it's a really, really well made film. And another film that's done exclusively in a language that that you know is not English. And like those kind of works are really interesting. And had he stayed on the right path, we could have got some really quite interesting art from him. But that was not to be. And I mean, Neil Hamilton was kind of fucked from the start, really. I mean, you talk about Mel Gibson drinking at the age of 15. This guy was a Tory by the age of 15. I don't know which is the worst corrupting force, but <laughs> like, that's like, you're kind of screwed at that point, right? So I guess um, the early trauma thing at this point, it's like going down the wrong path at a young age, maybe yeah. kind of affected both lives. So I, I'm just, I'm still surprised that a guy whose entire family were coal miners became a conservative. So weird. It's so weird. It's so against the grain. Maybe maybe it's Rebellious. a rebellion thing. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, exactly. So there we go. Um, Mel Gibson, anti-Semitic, Hollywood, infamy, and uh, still somehow working. And Neil Hamilton, the man who sued everyone he could, and is still somehow working despite losing every single libel case. Sued um, people for doing things that he did that he said he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sued people for telling the truth and who knew that the, uh, eventually that comes out apparently so yeah so those are our two idiots for this week I've, I've had a lot of fun doing this i had a lot of fun i knew you were um kind of going to give me like an actor director i didn't honestly think it would be mel gibson i, I didn't know who i thought it would be i thought it'd be maybe um could be Cecil anybody or something it could it could have <laughs> been anyone yeah there are quite a few candidates in Hollywood for idiots, and maybe we'll get to them in the future. But um, yeah, I think Mel Gibson is a, a very good starting point for uh, famous idiots, certainly. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> sorry, pardon me. That's our show for this week. If you'd like to follow us on our social media, uh, we are at Greatest Idiots on Twitter, and we are at History's Greatest Idiots on Instagram. And if you go to patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots, you can support us financially and do more for us than our hosting platform is currently doing. So if you'd <laughs> like to help us out, that would be great. And reach out to us anytime. Uh, we always like to have suggestions from our listeners. So if you do have anyone, uh, reach out to us on social media and uh, drop us a line. And we may, we covered um, Tycho Brahe, I think, as a result of a listener suggestion. So that was, that was really good. Seiko? Jose Canseco, yes, another uh, listener suggestion. So, uh, was that one that we covered because someone suggested it to us? Jose Canseco, yeah, I think so. Yeah, they told me to yeah. cover the Bash Brothers. That was... Ah, there you go. So there you go. So we do do audience requests. So if you'd like to, if you have a, a good idiot for us to cover, then please reach out to us on those social media pages, Absolutely. and we'll see. Yeah, we'll see you again soon, everybody. Take care now and. Uh, We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye now.